Cocoa Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you are serious about your podcast hosting needs, you should check out Cyber Ears. Whether you are a podcaster, a radio host, a musician, a narrator, an audiobook author, or simply a school, church, corporation, or anyone else with an audio recording that needs to be hosted or distributed, you should check out CyberEars.com. Unlimited bandwidth, fast, reliable, and rugged servers with no hidden fees. CyberEars, your audio, your terms. Listen, it's getting closer. Hey, you got your Coco 3 yet? A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Okay, here we are. Uh, episode 19. Welcome back, Coco Cruisers. Uh, this is John Linville, and I'm joined by uh, Neil Blanchard. Hello, everyone. Hello, Neil. Hello. <laughs> and Mike Rowan. How are you, Mike? I'm great. Coco Christmas, everyone. Coco Christmas. Awesome. Well, it is Christmas time. Uh, always a lovely time of the year for at least for me. My my employer traditionally uh, shuts down uh, between uh, Christmas and New Year's, so giving me plenty of time to work on uh, cocoa projects. Uh, hopefully, I'm gonna. I've got the time. Hopefully, I'll get to to do to the projects this year. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes it, it takes me two or three days to get started, and then <laughs> by the time you're two or three days in, everybody's kind of stir crazy, and they want to go out and go see a movie or something. So you lose another day or two, end up getting only two days at the end. But <laughs> hopefully, it'll work out better than that. But anyway, yeah. So Coco Fest is uh, what four months away now. It'll be coming up in April. Crazy. Hard to imagine, huh? That's amazing. <laughs> Coco Fest to me, that's when the New Year starts. You know, I, I count the New Year as a Coco Fest. <laughs> that's true. Well, I, I count it as Christmas, or at least it's the second Christmas. Second Christmas. <laughs> Christmas <laughs> got a <few> cool. <laughs> we ask every month, but have you guys got the projects underway or started for for Coco Fest? Uh, I'm still waiting for parts. Hopefully, they're here soon. Still. Oh yeah. I, I'm I'm checking. You've ordered if they're coming from China. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> they take a while sometimes. Do they ever? And uh, no tracking either. So yeah, well, it's usually free. That's a good point. But then you got no tracking, and it takes uh, some your parts. <laughs> yeah. So we're always how about you, parts. Yeah, I'm waiting for parts. <laughs> I got I got Ian's FD five hundred two board, and uh, I don't have two of the sockets I need, so I'm waiting for sockets to arrive to finish that board. Wow. <laughs> Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm uh, still not actually into any of my projects. Uh, I've got a couple of things in mind. Uh, hopefully, I'll get at least one or two of them uh, going strong here in the next couple of weeks. Um, hopefully, get uh, some kind of game goodness coming. Um, maybe put the the uh, the shoulder to the wheel on a little hardware design. But um, 
you know, we'll see. <laughs> uh, still got a little time before Cocoa Fest for something to gel. Hopefully it'll be something good. Um, so what about uh, acquisitions? Uh, you guys been on eBay or doing anything uh, that way? Or maybe you stumbled across some new gold mine of a, gold mine of a uh, thrift shop or anything nearby? Well, actually, uh, I, I did splurge on eBay. Um, I, I couldn't oh, yeah? resist. It was a multi-pack listed. Uh, actually, it was in North Bay, Ontario, so it's a couple hours from here. And uh, the reason why I got it, I don't need another multi-pack, but this one just caught my eye. It, it was modded, and it had these funky uh, LEDs for each slot. And there's a oh, yeah. LED and a red LED. Now, I haven't fired it up yet. I want to find out what it does. But, yeah, you know, sometimes when you see these mods that people have done in the past, it just intrigues you, and uh, you just want to check it out. Yeah. They probably, one probably represents the, uh, the, the ROM select, uh, and the other one probably, uh, represents what the, the interrupts routing or something like that. That'd be cool. Uh, so that if you switch them in software, it, it'll indicate which one is in use. That'd be my guess. That'd be, that'd be really yeah. neat. I'll have to let you guys know. Yeah. And I, that'd and be kind of cool. Also made another purchase, uh, not on eBay, but I, um, I've been wanting one for a while, as you you know, I've been messaging about it. But uh, the Cryoflux, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, for doing yeah. uh, disc, mm -hmm. disc images, disc copies. Cool. So that should be pretty interesting when it arrives. Uh, that's coming from the UK, so that'll probably take a while too. Cool. That sounds like a sounds like a tech segment brewing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I might actually do one on it because uh, I, I want to get knee deep into it. So. Yeah, I've got one of those. I've barely experimented with it, so I've never actually put it to good use. Uh, and mine is so early, I wouldn't be surprised if, if my hardware is broken and out of date and I just miss the updates. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's not true. Anyway, well, cool. Um, so sounds like you've got some cool stuff brewing. Um, I, d I have a couple of minor acquisitions. I did pick up a... Uh, a CGP 220 uh, uh, operations manual, uh, or, you know, original manual. Nice. Off of eBay. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's kind of cool to flip through. <laughs> um, you know, it's just like any other printer manual. You kind of have to have a special uh, special kind of weirdness to, to appreciate <laughs> that sort of thing. But <laughs> it's nice <laughs> to have anyway. Oh, for sure. Um and I also got a copy uh, Graph Express for the Coco 3. Are you guys familiar with Graph Express? Yes, I've got a copy of that as well. Yeah, I haven't actually dug into it yet, but uh, it looks like it's a programming environment for uh, doing some graphical applications. Part of why I was interested in it is, uh, you know, it actually has, uh, it, it appears to have support for the 8-bit uh, color uh, graphics mode on the Coco 3 actually built into it, um, kind of sort of quietly built into it. <laughs> it's a little understated. I don't know why, but it mentions it in some of the documentation about having a, I think it calls it 256 colors, um, but uh, you know, the, the, the special mode for the composite only. Um, yeah, it's Graph Express 256 is a graphic sound system based on 250. Color graphics and will work on composite monitors or color televisions. At least this one package uh, from back then that supported it, and 
Uh, now I've got a, a physical copy in hand. I can prove it. <laughs> uh, Pixel Blaster is the other uh, programming environment that uh, has some similarities. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. yeah? I'm not familiar with that one. Cool. Well, yeah. something to check out. Express. Uh, I'm thinking that maybe it would be uh, worthy of a tag segment at some point. Does that cover it, all our acquisitions? Uh, I was just going to say, uh, do you want to talk about the AgVision uh, incident? Oh, 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 oh God. <laughs> just, it's a little too Heartbreak. sore. Heartbreak. Oh, it's a heartbreak. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, all right. So for um, most of our listeners have probably heard of the um, the video text uh, terminals, which looks a lot like, uh, but it ultimately is a, a kind of a different uh, motherboard with a, a serial or with a modem, uh, 300 baud modem built in, uh, and it was used for uh, access textual information on, uh, on a ro- remotely attached computers back in the day, like CompuServe and and Genie, uh, Delphi. There was a machine that, at least externally, appears to be uh, the same, um, called an AgVision terminal. Uh, which uh, I believe to to have been like the the um, the stopgap or the, the the thing to keep offering to the people who had been involved with the earlier project Green Thumb that eventually led to the Cocoa in the first place. Um, but so this AgVision terminal uh, is kind of unique in that well, number one, it has the uh, the the label above the keyboard that says AgVision, and it's painted uh, kind of this. Uh, light blue or medium blue color kind of neat and i'd only seen one once before not in person but on ebay years ago found a picture of it uh that uh, actually it was from glenn vandebigler's site i think right <laughs> and, yeah, uh, borrowed the picture and posted it out on google plus and said these if anybody has one uh and i'll make it worth your while basically is what i was saying um, and I can't help now but wonder whether or not that ultimately was a mistake, <laughs> because um, now you're held hostage. Having that little well, having that little thing out, I think may have served to make someone aware of this rare. And so I, I get a comment on there said, "Hey, I just bought one of these on eBay." And so uh, it, best I can tell, they were watching the newly listed items on eBay and happened to see this blue thing that looked like a cocoa come across and they bought it and uh, just to add a little insult to injury they managed to pick it up for 50 bucks (laughs) (laughs) and so i can't help but wonder if if i made this person aware of something they would not otherwise been aware of in which case it might have been on the uh, on ebay uh, on the market a little longer possibly long enough that i could have seen it in which case I might could have been the guy picking it up for 50 bucks. <laughs> but instead, alas, that is not what happened. And so someone else picked it up. It's a, one of Neil's uh, countrymen there is a Canadian. Um, and it seems like a nice enough guy. He's uh, offered to take some pictures of the inside. Uh, so we'll at least maybe get to see if it truly is the same as the video text terminals or not. I did offer him a kind of ridiculous amount of money for the uh, for the box and was turned down. So I guess he's serious about keeping it. Um, but, uh, you know, 
my ridiculous amount of money, which was, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should disclose or not. But anyway, if you, if anyone else does have one and is interested in hearing what my idea of a ridiculous amount of money uh, for one is, please feel <laughs> free to contact me and then we can negotiate from there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, that's, uh, that's a long story and a long introduction, but uh, it probably makes uh, enough of an introduction for the show. What do you think? Yeah, that's a great one. All right. Well, with that in mind, we'll take a little break, and we'll be back in a second with some announcements. The Coco Crew Podcast wishes you the happiest of holidays. During Christmas, the color computer, displayed as a full system, should be on at all times, including a color TV, a cassette recorder, cartridge software, disk drive, joysticks, multi-pack interface, plug-in power, education and entertainment software, dust covers, ribbons, diskettes and diskette holders, second color computer, second cassette recorder, a second color TV, a second plug-in power, power strip and modem. A software package with a free-running demo should be on at all times. A perfect example of that type of program would be Dungeons of Daggereth. Again, a software package with a free-running demo should be on at all times. All of the other peripherals are displayed nearby. Notice a second color TV is hooked in through a splitter, so you can have two demos running at one time. Remember, during Christmas, the color computer should be on at all times. It's Radio Shack's Spectacular Christmas Sale. I just got a great buy for my stereo system. These Radio Shack speakers on sale for $39.95 each. That's half price, a real bargain. A two-way bass reflex system, incredible bass, clear, crisp highs, and a rich walnut veneer finish. Looks great, sounds great. And for a limited time, get the matching walnut veneer 64K Color Computer 2. It entertains, educates, and manages. It's expandable and affordable and features a rich walnut veneer finish. On sale now for just $99.95. Only at Radio Shack. We walnut veneer everything. Welcome back, Coco Cruisers. Now it's time for some announcements. Uh, we are the Coco Crew Podcast. We are available on Twitter as at Coco Crew Podcast. That's C O C O C R E W P O D C A S T, all one word. Uh, so if you are a, uh, uh, someone who likes to tweet, uh, uh, just out there at, at Coco Crew Podcast. We're also available on Facebook. We have a Facebook group called uh, The Coco Crew Podcast. That's uh, with spaces in between. So The Space Coco Space Crew Space Podcast. <laughs> and no, it's not a space podcast. That's a <laughs> it's a podcast about old computers. <laughs> anyway, um, come and check us out if you're on Facebook. And come and join the group. Uh, no shortage of people joining the group. Uh, of course, a lot of the uh, requests 
they show up and it's uh, a, a picture of a supermodel-esque uh, 22-year-old woman uh, with, uh, you know, 45 uh, friends, all of them middle-aged men. Um, but uh, no, you know, pictures of uh, flowers and cars and, you know, horses or something, but no indication of actual interest in, in uh, old computers. Uh, <laughs> I'm not really sure what all those people are trying to join the group. Uh, they tend to get turned down. Uh, <laughs> once in a while, we've let uh, uh, some questionable people in into the, the Color Computer Facebook group, and we end up with pictures of inappropriate tattoos and that sort of thing. <laughs> well, the Coco tattoos, so, you know, we'll let that slide. Yeah, a Coco tattoo is one thing, but a Coco... Uh, that an elephant uh, in a place that will normally be covered by a bathing suit on a man uh, is probably not appropriate for the Coco uh, <laughs> Facebook group. <laughs> Sorry. I hope that's not too explicit for any of our listeners. Um, anyway, moving on, as we probably should. Uh, we are available on iTunes, uh, available for streaming through Stitcher, available on Google Play. And we are available on TuneIn, which is a service available through the Amazon Echo device. So if you got an Amazon Echo for Christmas, as many of you might uh, might be prone to have gotten, uh, feel free to check us out. We are a member of the Throwback Now, an online collection of uh, retro-themed podcasts, many of which are... Uh, themed around old computers. Some are also uh, concentrating on other portions of of 80s culture or other cool old stuff. Anyway, if you're looking for uh, another podcast to fill some of your listening time, uh, you may want to check out the Throwback Network by Game Podcast Information Hub. Um, this is also a collection of other podcasts, retro-themed podcasts, uh, these are all technology-based, so um, or uh, home consoles or home computers from uh, generally the 80s um, or perhaps the early 90s in the case of uh, some of the DOS-oriented podcasts that are listed there. But anyway, again, if you're looking for another outlet for your podcast listening, uh, you may want to check out the Game by Game podcast information hub. Audio for the Coco Crew podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. It needs to have uh, audio content uh, hosted on the internet. Uh, so you check out cyberears.com where you will get your audio on your terms. If you'd like to reach uh, us with feedback on the show, uh, we have some email addresses set up. Um, if you want to reach uh, all of the hosts together, uh, you can use show at cococrew.org, podcast at cococrew.org, uh, or feedback at cococrew.org. Each of those will reach all of the hosts. Uh, if you want to reach one of the hosts individually, uh, then you can reach me as john at cococrew.org. That's J-O-H-N. Uh, you can reach Neil as neil, N-E-I-L, at cococrew.org. Uh, or you can reach Mike as M-I-K-E, Mike at cococrew.org. All right. Uh, at this point, uh, we'd like to uh, remind you of some upcoming events that may be of interest uh, to listeners of the podcast. Starting off this month with a new one. I don't think we've talked about this before. This one is sort of in my neighborhood. Uh, this is called the Playthrough Gaming Convention. 
and this will be held on February 25th and 26th of 2017 at the Raleigh Convention Center in Raleigh, North Carolina. Like I said, I've never been to this event, but it looks like a, kind of a typical gaming convention of, uh, with the, well, it's got things from gaming tournaments and cosplay and <laughs> just awesome. all kinds of, yeah. <laughs> nice to have something kind. a little more local for you. Yeah, so uh, it looks like a fun event. It's I think this is the second or third year they've had it. I was not aware of it until recently. Uh, I have not registered for this yet, but I may, uh, I'm kind of thinking that I will. Uh, if you're near me or roughly uh, where Raleigh's within your travel distance, you may want to check that out. That's, uh, again, the Playthrough Gaming Convention, February 25th and 26th of 2017. Coming up uh, next on the list, uh, Vintage Computer Festival East 12. Uh, this, of course, will be uh, held at the InfoAge Science Center in uh, Wall, New Jersey on uh, March 31st through April the 2nd of 2017. Uh, the first day will be Friday that they, uh, the way they run their show, they have kind of technical seminars and that sort of things for the, you know, the truly dedicated uh, <laughs> retro geeks to come and learn how to repair their lower old machines or, or, you know, clean up their, uh, their old plastics that are tarnished or, or, or turned yellow or whatever. Various kind of topics like that on Friday, followed by the kind of normal exhibit days and, and, um, with uh, kind of more general interest uh, speakers on uh, Saturday and Sunday. Again, it's a, a pretty good event. I've been there a couple of times. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll be there this year or not, but I'm definitely you know, going to be there be. this year. <laughs> you are? Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Pretty booked um, room. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so it's a good event and, uh, uh, it's, uh, if you're in the Northeast there, uh, or if you if that's within your travel distance, then uh, I, I would highly recommend it. So, I'm definitely thinking of going cool. to. Uh, uh, I just got to work on my wife, you know, because it it's approaching a Cocoa Fest time, so I got I got to work on that one. Yeah, that's the only problem. Sometimes it's they're pretty close, but at least in this case, they're about three weeks apart. That's, I'm thinking I'm going to be all right on this one. Yeah. That brings us up to uh, to the 20th Chicago Cocoa Fest, uh, April 22nd and 23rd of 2017. That, of course, will be held uh, at the uh, Heron Point Convention Center in Lombard, Illinois. Uh, this has been the big event for uh, for those of us interested in the cocoa. Uh, certainly the reason why we, uh, part of the reason we started the Cocoa Crew Podcast was to promote this event. Um, certainly our big event we've enjoyed for years. Uh, come and celebrate the cocoa and see what other people are doing with it. Um, talk about, uh, you know, what, what people are doing with the cocoa, what the cocoa could be doing. Um, trade cocos, trade software for the cocoa, uh, or other items. Participate in the auction. Great fun is had by all. Uh, <laughs> um, anything you guys like to add about Cocoa Fest? Uh, yeah, you should thing, go. Uh, I was just going to say that you should be there. Everybody should be there. That's right. If you are enjoying the Cocoa Crew podcast, um, then you probably should be at Cocoa Fest with the rest of us. Uh, you will find your people there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Definitely looking forward to that. That's coming up four months. That's the new year. 
It's the new year. <laughs> it's the Coco or Coco uh, Crew New Year, the uh, Coco Fest. That's right. All right, moving on past the new year <laughs> to to June ninth through eleventh of twenty seventeen. Uh, that takes us to the Southern Fried Game Room Expo, which will be Renaissance Atlanta Waverly Hotel and Convention Center. That of course is in Atlanta, Georgia. Looks like a cool event. Um, they have uh, arcade games and and uh, uh, pinball machines. Uh, I think they're gonna have all that stuff on site. Um, yeah, it, the Southern Fried Game Room Expo features more than 250 arcade, pinball, and console machines. The fourth annual Southern Fried Pinball Tournament, tabletop gaming, a vendor expo, exciting programs and guest speakers, movie screenings, and so much more. Sounds like a fun event. I haven't made it out there yet myself. Uh, it's kind of a shame because it's not that far away from me. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, I think it'd be a cool event to go to. Hoping to make it. Can't promise it's going to be this year or not, but I'm definitely hoping to make it soon. <laughs> Mike, were you still wanting to go? Yeah, but there's uh, there's so many events and only so, so much time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a that's sort of a problem. I guess it's a good problem to have, though, right? <laughs> but uh, anyway, if time and money were no objects, I would I would attend all these fests, and I really mean that. <laughs> yeah, so Red Hats uh, changed around their their uh, vacation policy a little bit. So this coming up here, that there's a greater chance of uh, uh, losing uh, uh, vacation time if you don't take it. <laughs> so I may be having to force, uh, maybe forced into having to uh, find ways to use vacation time. So maybe I'll go to a few more of these events. Oh, shucks! What a problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they used to let you bank it up so you get a check when you quit, I guess. But uh, <laughs> um, they ah. cut down on that. Anyway, before I say something uh, my employer regrets, I'll uh, switch back off to tell you about Kansas Fest 2017 coming up on uh, July 18 to 23rd. Now, that's what, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23? That's six days. So Kansas Fest is a cool event. It's basically a summer camp for geeks. Uh, if there's an unfortunately, it, it's unfortunately that it's for Apple II geeks and not Cocoa geeks, but they're pretty friendly folks. And as long as you're not openly hostile, I think you'll be welcome <laughs> to <laughs> come and join them, uh, hang out. You know, I find that there's a lot of overlap of interest. Um, uh, many people are interested in more than one old computer anyway. And, and uh, the Apple II is one that a lot of us have had some exposure to. Um, anyway, it's a pretty cool event. You go, they have seminars during the day. You hang out with a bunch of other, you know, retro geek style of people take meals together in the, uh, in the, uh, you know, the college cafeteria or whatever. It's, uh, held at Rockhurst university in, uh, um, uh, Kansas city, uh, Missouri. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, it's a pretty good event. I've been to it once. Uh, I'd like to go again. Uh, I keep saying that on every event, but uh, I'd like to go again. I'm not sure if this is the year or not, but uh, I'm, I'm keeping it in mind, and uh, it could be. Uh, what about you guys? Are you guys putting a thought on going to Kansas Fest this year? I've got it on my schedule, but I'm like you, and 
I guess it's a toss-up. Do I go to the Southern Fried Game Room this year, or do I go to Kansas Fest this year? But I don't think I can go to both. Yeah, well, Kansas Fest is a bigger commitment. It might be a bigger payoff. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, they're both cool. Well, I know Kansas Fest is a cool event. Southern Fried Game Room looks like a cool event too. Uh, of course, it's June in August, uh, June in Atlanta, so it won't be too cool outside. But huh, but uh, bump. <laughs> Anyway, well, let's move on. Uh, the next event I have on the list, actually the last event, is something called Coleco Expo. I don't know a lot about. It seems to be held in uh, at the New Jersey Convention and Exposition Center in uh, Edison, New Jersey. Uh, seems to be dedicated to all things Coleco. Um, they seem to have changed their website to be actually in some ways less specific <laughs> about what's going on there. But I, I noticed that. I think it includes, um, you know, Coleco video games and Coleco toys. Yeah, so the Coleco Retro Gaming and Collectibles Expo, August 5th, 6th, 2017. Um, so it shows a picture of Donkey Kong and Frogger. It also had a picture of a Cabbage Patch doll. Um, they seem to be promoting a Coleco guest, uh, a very attractive young lady named Sophie Reynolds. I have no idea who she is. Uh, I did look her up, and she seemed to come up as uh, uh, some sort of gamer girl, whatever exactly that means. <laughs> so um, if you know who Sophie Reynolds is and you want to meet her, uh, then you can need to get out to uh, the Coleco Expo uh, coming up this year in uh, in Edison, New Jersey, and of course that again is August fifth and sixth, twenty seventeen. It's not this year, but next year, I guess. I think you just yeah. flogged the event now. There's going to be a ton of people there, and you say gamer girl. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <laughs> she she kind of looks like um, uh, I forget her name, but from uh, that old uh, uh, what was the TV show where it was Save the Cheerleader, Save the World. She kind of looks like that cheerleader. So, uh, you know. Okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, oh, God. I just can't seem to quit running my mouth today. But anyway. <laughs> Dig that hole deeper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, one last item on the uh, one last item on the announcements. Again, we've been uh, mentioning uh, we have some promos out there. Uh, for promoting uh, Coco Fest 2017, these are audio promos uh, that Mr. Rowan produced. I've got them available for download. If you have an outlet for them, uh, you know, such as another podcast or that's uh, retro computing themed or, or whatever, um, you are free to use them. Please download them, promote the events for us. Uh, obviously, don't modify them. At least, don't don't modify them in ways that change the message. Um, I guess if you need to cut a second or two out of them here or there, that would probably be okay. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, they're out there. Links in the show notes. Uh, feel free to download them and uh, run them on your podcast. That's all the announcements. Uh, you guys have anything? All nope. right. Sources say no. So <laughs> we'll take another little break and be back with some news. P. Clear Records is proud to bring you newly discovered Coco Christmas hits from the Damp Basement Archives. Here is just a sample.
Christmas is a go-go free, a go-go free, a go-go free. Coco sitting with a multi-pack. These songs and two more were discovered on molded cassettes. Originally recorded on a CCR81 cassette recorder, these songs have been copied directly to a CCR83 and are now available to the public on cassette for just $8.99. That's right, just $8.99. Order now to make your Coco Christmas complete. To get your cassette of Coco Christmas, send $8.99 by check or money order to Peaklear Records. Coco Christmas offer 3Z9, Elm Tree, Ontario, Canada. And now we're back with some news. All right, well, our first news item comes from the uh, uh, fellow named Craig Stewart. You guys know Craig? No, never heard of him. <laughs> oh, wait, I'm getting... Audio from one of mine. Oh, there we go. <laughs> I was kidding. I brought up the MM1 promotional video in the background, and it was I was hearing the music. I thought that sounded familiar. It's <laughs> ambient music. All right, we'll get to that. In a yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so Craig Stewart posts to the Color Computer Group. This is uh, Coco spotting. You know, he's referring to, to I, I saw a Coco here or there, kind of like uh, when people do train spotting, I guess. Train at a certain time, whatever. Anyway, he says, seems I saw a couple of Cocos in the new film, lo and behold, about the history of the internet. Or are they TDP 100s or something else? I mean, he posts a couple of pictures. They look like Cocos to me. I suppose they might be video text terminals. The biggest question for me was, What's lo and behold? <laughs> had you guys heard of lo and behold? No, I, I had not. That. No, me neither. So I put a link farther down in the show notes. Um, uh, it's, uh, there's a, a film by uh, Werner Herzog. I don't know anything about Werner Herzog, but apparently he's a filmmaker of some renown. Uh, yeah, maybe he, as he, famous as he cranks Michael out the documentaries. Walker. Yeah, so this, this is some version of Michael Moore from Germany, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that could be completely unfair. I apologize to Mr. Herzog or any uh, of his fans or whatever, uh, or to Michael Moore. Or, uh, who knows? I apologize to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolved. Anyway... Yeah, uh, so lo and behold, Reveries of the Connected World is a film by Werner Herzog, uh, and it's, you know, it it's appears to be, at least at this, on the surface, a kind of history of the internet, uh, and maybe a little deeper than that, it's maybe a commentary on the influence on, on the internet has, on has different, that sort of thing. I don't know, I, re- I, I haven't watched the film, kind of saw some of the trailer making some interpretations here but um anyway so there if you you may want to look that one up uh, i think you could buy it um uh like through amazon or something maybe maybe you can get it through netflix eventually probably you can be able to get through netflix at some point so if you're listening in this uh, episode um you know in 2025 or whenever you might get to it <laughs> you might go check out find lo and behold and watch the film. If you're, you know, interested in old computers, you might be interested in old internet, right? Anyway, so back up. Apparently, in lo and behold, there's some reference. There's a few pictures of Coco's. Uh, they must not go into a lot of detail, or else um, 
Craig wouldn't have to be guessing as to what whether they were Cocos or not. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it shows they were there. Coco's been uh, downloading data from the internet, uh, you know, for quite a while. Uh, so uh, perhaps not a surprise, but we were there. <laughs> That's a good catch by Craig. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Hackaday, uh, if you're not familiar with Hackaday, it's a, a website that uh, it's kind of expanded over time. It de definitely it started out as just a, a website that would every day promote somebody's hack. You know, somebody had, you know would post uh, people would post whatever they had done that involving technology, computers, or whatever. And uh, you know, if they thought you'd done a good job, they'd put it out there, and you get the hack of the day, right? And over time, it's it's uh, evolved a little bit, but that's still sort of the basic notion: is is cool hacks on on technology or whatever. Uh, and they have a sort of a soft spot uh, for retro stuff in general. Um, and so you'll see a lot of stuff on Hackaday that that has to do with retro computing, one way or another. But so anyway, they recently did this uh, article, the, the basic issue issue with retro computers. Um, there's talks a bit about well, really about using BASIC on old computers. <laughs> um, and just sort of in general talks about retro computers. Uh, I read the article, but uh, I don't have it fresh in my mind at the moment. But the main point is there is some attention from from Hackaday for retro computers. None of this is actually Cocoa stuff, but it's sort of related in the, in the retro sort of way. So you may want to check it out and uh, at least keep Hackaday on your radar for, you know, interesting stuff in the future you guys like hacking today i do that's an interesting uh, website yeah that was a good little yeah. article too yeah that's pretty cool i've got some hackaday stickers somewhere uh, <laughs> i should plaster them over some laptops or something oh, cool. <laughs> anyway I've, I've i've gotten a couple of projects listed on hackaday but not in a while though they change hands or something. I'm not sure what the process is now. It might, I'm not sure if it's any easier or harder, but whatever. Still a cool site, uh, so check it out. You have to look for Sophie Reynolds' uh, articles out there. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm sure that's uh, that's the main attraction there. <laughs> <laughs> um, save Sophie, save the world. Um, all right, so moving on to a, a, it's a, a reasonably modern news story in terms of computer stuff, but it harkens back to a, a retro past. And uh, there's a couple of these out this month, but um, I, I just picked one. But uh, Microsoft replaces with PowerShell a new Windows 10 build. And uh, so CMD, it's kind of funny because CMD actually is, is, already a replacement for the original command.com, uh, which was the, the DOS command prompt. Um, CMD.exe, uh, an OS2 heritage, um, but came through, it came in uh, Windows NT, um, and, but basically has the same kind of interface as, as the old command.com in terms of, you know, limited shell scripting and, uh, or batch file scripting is basically what it is, and and basic command execution, and that's about it. And so, several years ago now, Microsoft implemented something that they call PowerShell, which 
you know, I've never really used much. To me, it, it kind of reminded me of a, almost like a full-blown programming language, almost like Python or something, but different. But anyway, it was sort of a response to the notion that Unix uh, and Linux uh, uh, in particular, but other Unix-style operating systems as well, uh, had more power at the command line. And therefore, uh, if you're running a server on the internet somewhere, you mostly log into it and run from the command line and be able to do powerful things from the command line. Uh, and so that was seen as a, a strength uh, for Unix-style uh, systems versus Windows. And so they brought out PowerShell to kind of address that weakness. Anyway, it looks like now PowerShell is going to be the default command shell for Windows 10. Although it sounds like uh, you can still teach it, at least for the time being, to uh, to launch the older cmd.ac for a while. Um, who knows? Maybe by Windows 15 or something, you won't have that at all. Who knows? <laughs> but anyway, I just included that as an, an item of might be of interest to uh, you know our retro-themed uh, <laughs> listeners. Uh, bound to be some old DOS users in the crowd, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. Another part of the past that's getting uh, taken away. Yeah, probably for the better, but still, <laughs> it's something a lot of people are used to, right? Yeah. Uh, most people are thinking, uh, "What took you so long?" Yeah, well, that's probably true too. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on, uh, we have a post to the Fusix uh, Devel or Fusix 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 <laughs> from a, a fellow named Neil Crook. That name seems really familiar to me, but I'm not really sure. I don't know that much about Neil. Maybe that should be a project to research. But Neil posts about um, how he's got the, well, so he's got a piece of uh, the virtual machine or whatever that's needed for for using BCPL, which is a programming language, um, but running it under Fusix. <laughs> so you can write programs in BCPL under Fusix, compile them, and then be able to execute them on the 6809. Uh, the code itself from the compiler is not 6809 code. It's for this virtual machine, but you have the virtual machine that can run. So it's kind of like it, the runtime environment in some sense is similar to, to the way basic 09 works on OS 9. Um, it's just that the language, instead of being basic or basic 09, it's BCPL. Uh, why is that interesting? Well, BCPL is credited as being kind of the uh, uh, predecessor or progenitor of the C programming language, which of course um, not only was the implementation language for Unix, but also has become uh, a sort of the default systems programming language, well, really of the whole world, although there's always been a, a contingent of computer scientists who are desperately flinging poo at sea. <laughs> <laughs> because it doesn't have uh, the 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 their preferred uh, form of memory or whatever built into the language. Basically, no memory management at all built into the language. You know, whatever its shortcomings, C has proven itself to be an effective tool for decades of um, developing computer system software, operating systems, uh, embed systems, that sort of thing. Anyway, I'm not going to spend too much time defending C. C can defend itself, but if you're interested in C, or if you're interested in what came before C, uh, there's this language called BCPL. And if you want to run it, um, one option is to get Fusix up on your Cocoa and, and run BCPL there. Um, 
just as a side note, it turns out that <laughs> there's uh, more than a little interest in BCPL out there in the world. And actually, if you look around, you can find some links where you can get a BCPL compiler that will run on on uh, you know on your PC, <laughs> and you can write BCPL code on your PC. But you know, shh, this is a Cocoa podcast, so we're not telling you about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's actually a book on the, the implementation of BCPL. Uh, it, it, you can buy them used off Amazon, but very affordably. I just did that. Uh, hadn't come in yet. <laughs> anyway. That impressive library over there. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I was poking a little fun at people's irrational interest in uh, Fourth and uh, Lisp and, and so perhaps I have an irrational interest in BCPL. We'll see how that turns out once I get my book. <laughs> All right. Okay, moving on. Uh, so this post is from Carlos Carlos Camacho, and he's a little bit of a newbie to our group. Uh, I remember adding him to the Facebook group not that long ago, uh, but he's been pretty active since he's been added. So I'm not sure, you know, if he just is a if he's truly new to the color computer, or maybe he was already an active color computer guy that just wasn't in the Facebook group, or whatever. Anyway, I've seen plenty of activity from him. Pretty cool stuff. Um, he posts here that uh, he's looking at Ed Snyder's products, including this 6847, that's the VDG, uh, external character ROM board. And so what that is is a way that you can put a ROM in that changes the fonts that are used in text mode on your Cocoa 1 or 2 or 3, oh, not 3, your Cocoa 1 or 2, or Dragon for that matter, or, or basically anything that uses 6847, I guess. Um, but... Uh, you know, so he puts together, a, 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 connects a couple of dots for himself. I think several of us have hit um, uh, and and uh, then gets excited, but uh, I don't know if he's uh, if he's gotten to the point where he realizes the limitations. <laughs> but so he says, I saw the white text on black fonts, and I thought, why not make text-based sprites? Um, and so the notion is that you could um, use, you know, either the the external character ROM or some variation of that that kind of design and be able to, to uh, have uh, single characters that rather than look like letters and numbers, they look like, you know, frogs and demons or, or whatever. Uh, and you could use them uh, as, as um, you know, tiles or, or, or character sprites or, or however you wanted to call them. But much of the way that some arcade hardware or some other retro computing hardware works on its graphics. And it's not a bad idea. The problem being that you have no control really over the colors, or at least very, very little control. So, uh, you know, you can, you basically have either the dark green on light green or light green on dark green, uh, or you can put it to where it's the, uh, you know, reddish orange or orangish red whatever on orange or orange on the, the orangish red <laughs> um and you, and it's <laughs> and yeah and it's that way for every you can't even differentiate it per per uh sprite it's that way for every sprite you're using um so at first it sounds kind of useful and it can be and it kind of depends on your actual application um, but it's not quite as useful as it sounds. So 
anyway, I saw Carlos kind of hit this realization and I thought, you know, I've been there and it took me a while to figure out that maybe it's not quite as useful as it seems at first. And I've seen other people hit that too. So I thought it was worth mentioning and discussing a little bit here. Mike could be yeah. a text when I get, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I, yeah, I understand what you're saying because the, uh, the Coco two is kind of, and the Coco one are kind of limited by that uh, 6847. You yeah. could, I mean, even if you, I mean, you probably have more flexibility doing it through software than I don't know if there's any big key advantage to doing it through hardware. I mean, it's kind of a cool project. I, I uh, did have done similar things under OS nine, you know, in basic O nine, but, but, but there you on OS nine level two, you've got uh, fonts of course that you can load in and I've created fonts with different, uh, different characters along the way. And there you've got color control and stuff. So. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, like I say, if you know, it's the colors, that's the biggest thing. If you can somehow live with the colors, um, you can certainly, you know, make the graphics move around uh, very easily with, with a lot less manipulation performance theoretically, but your colors are going to look terrible. <laughs> so it's a shame that there's not some way to build that in or, or, or fix that design, but a retrofit on top of it, but there just isn't. And that's really, that's the frustrating part of the color computer, you know, the color graphics chip for the color computer was just so <laughs> not so good. Um, <laughs> kind of the, the albatross around our necks. It's kind of yeah. ironic, I guess. But Yeah, it's both endearing and frustrating. To defend the Coco, a lot of machines at that time didn't have very good color sets either. That's true. It's just ours is probably worse than most of the others. <laughs> <laughs> be a little optimistic there. <laughs> yeah. Not quite as bad as it seems, but still not 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 a plus point either. <laughs> oh well. Anyway, moving on from that little bit of ignominy or whatever. Uh, next announcement comes from Gary Be Becker. Of course, Gary Becker is uh, the force behind the Coco 3 FPGA project. Uh, he sent a, an announcement to that group's uh, Yahoo group. I just uploaded Coco 3 FPGA version 4.1. This is a full release version, including all the source. Uh, see the included readme file, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, the point is, uh, if you're following Coco 3 FPGA, there's a new release. Um, you know, each new release um, tends to bring some minor features, sometimes bring some new minor problems. Um, but you know, you may want to check it out to see if, uh, uh, you know, see if it does something better for you. Do you guys have the hardware for Coco 3 FPGA? No, I don't. The D1 No, I don't either. Yeah. I, I got one, uh, about a year ago. I haven't used it much, but I did get it up and loading, uh, and, uh, and running. And then it's like, okay, well, that's cool. And I got a dozen other Coco projects to get to, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you know, let's go do something else but uh all right well let's move on all right so this one is kind of interesting i'll have the link for the one the mm1 promotional video uh, this came from boise boise pete uh and i'm sure you guys know what the mm1 is i don't know if our listeners if all of them do um of course the mm1 was a machine designed uh kind of as an unofficial um, uh, follow-up to the Coco 3 or an unofficial successor to the Coco 3. Uh, it was an OS 9 68000 machine. 
uh, that kind of came out of the Cocoa community. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting machine uh, in some ways from a historical perspective. Uh, well, anyway, I'm not going to talk a lot about the MM1, but the video is kind of neat. Uh, it's a, kind of a period piece. Uh, Got to be from the early 90s. Uh, kind of just tells about you know where they were trying to position the MM1 and you know how they thought it was working. Uh, Boise posted. Uh, you may want well to check out some of his other videos. He posted a few others in the same time frame that that are kind of from the same uh, time period. Um, you know, like I said, you may want to check out some of his some of his other video, YouTube videos. Uh, so if you go through the link there, you can see uh, Boise's channel and check them out. I did you guys check out this video? Yeah, I did, and I really enjoyed that video, and uh, it, it was hilarious. I I get a kick out of watching videos from the early nineties. Uh, yeah, <laughs> good, good, good video, and nothing makes you feel old uh, <laughs> more than watching these. I, I don't want to give yeah, any spoilers, it's pretty funny. But don't want to give any spoilers away, but there's some pretty funny, uh, funny moments in that video. At least I thought there was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. Yeah. All right, well, should, everybody points. check those out. Yeah, I think I think people will enjoy seeing those. Um, next link comes from Alan Huffman. Not a lot of story here, um, but uh, he shares it says when Bill Gates signed a contract with Tandy, and so he's got an image of uh, some sort of document that's got uh, a signature from I can't make it out, but somebody representing uh, Radio Shack and uh, or Tandy Corporation, and then. Uh, signature from a William H. Gates, president of Microsoft. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of cool to see it. Uh, I think we all already knew that somebody from Microsoft made a deal with somebody from Tandy, so I'm not sure if that advances the ball much on uh, on our knowledge of the past, but still interesting to see. Um, what do you think? Uh, just another uh, chunk of uh, Cocoa history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to see that. All right. Because it showed that Microsoft had their hand in everything. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> Sorry, I just opened a bunch of links to the Jim Gary videos. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you're booting up a video game. One, two, three, five, one, yeah. Um, Okay, so our next five links all come from uh, Jim Geary. Um, so Jim has had a busy month uh, uh, porting basic programs to the MC10. I think these are all MC10 games. Um, anyway, so he's got, like I said, the, the names of the games. He's got Cavern 2160. Uh, he's got the port of a uh, Apple Bowling Champ. He's got a game called Jetpack. Uh, as a, that's the name of a, a well-known game from the era. I assume that's... Uh, uh, he's got something in basic here. I'm not sure if it's a, if it'll look a lot like Jetpack, but <laughs> it'll be something to play for sure. Uh, he's got uh, something called Escape from Colditz. Don't know a lot about that game. Um Looks like a lot of basic involved, <laughs> as all of Jim's games do. And then he's got one called Robot Nim. Um, again, it's kind of a neat-looking game. 
if you're looking for some extra games to play on your MC10, uh, as, as usual, I would say check out what Jim's got and uh, give them a try. Looks like a lot of cool stuff there. I don't know. You guys uh, have a chance to try any of these games on your MC10? I haven't yet. Uh, you can't keep up. I, I say it every month. Jim's a machine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, he produces a lot be. of stuff. He's had a busy month, for sure. And he definitely must be the master at porting uh, basic programs. He, he's got to be. <laughs> well, he he probably could write a book on this stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All we can say is keep him coming. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. All right, well, moving on. Uh, we've got, we'll put the date earlier, Hackaday links, but we've got three more Hackaday links. Um, I don't think any of them are really Coco per se, but, uh, you know, one is... Uh, it's uh let's see Z- ZX81 connects to the network, so that's the old uh, the Timex Sinclair machine. Uh, somebody's wired that up to um, the kind of ubiquitous uh, ESP8266. Um, if you're if you're into maker style projects, so you probably have heard about that chip already. But it's basically a you know a smart wireless style device that uh, a lot of people use for for hooking up uh, for kind of Internet of Things style. Uh, projects. In this case, the uh, the thing is uh, loading code from an FTP server, and the thing is a ZX81, or it's a Brazilian ZX81 clone, the, the TK85. You know, not a lot of news here. Uh, could be uh, a lot of people might will find this project interesting, so I included it. Uh, so in case you're uh, bored after having uh, eaten your uh, Christmas uh, feast <laughs> you go check out hackaday and uh, see what they're doing on this zx81 or zx81 for the canadians <laughs> <laughs> let's see moving on to the next link it's the 1980s way i think i was gonna say i think some of the people that are involved with the uh, vcf east may have been involved with this project yeah so jeffrey brace and even Co- evan Koblenz. Anyway, basically, this is just uh, where some people have built some simple robots to interface to uh, their retro computers, um, basically out of Lego stuff. <laughs> uh, one of which is using the uh, the Dacta logo interface for the uh, for the Apple II. But the, the notion being that uh, you can, if you're into building robots and stuff, uh, you can use some pretty simple stuff. Uh, you don't have to have a brand new top of the line whatever to build them you can build them out of simpler you can still make stuff that works and moves around just like you could back in the day um and again if you want to see what some people have done uh here's this hackaday link and you can go check it out <laughs> all right well moving on this one is not really retro at all except for uh you know maybe the inspired by the controller but the point uh, i've included it is because it's a uh project where somebody's hacked um a SNES controller uh, and a Wiimote to where it's basically blended them together. The reason why I thought it was interesting was because the plastic looks professionally done, <laughs> or at least close to it. A lot of the projects people want to do on retro computing uh, uh, end up with the, the uh, with something that has kind of a cool circuit, but they're not really sure how to how to fix it up. They do the equivalent of putting it in a in a a cardboard box or something. <laughs> um, working with plastics these days is not really that hard. Um, 
and you just have to learn a bit about it. So this is kind of a here, look and see what these guys did. And uh, maybe you'll find the motivation to, to uh, learn a little bit of plastic forming for yourself or for your own projects. What do you think, Neil? You're going to build uh, some uh, uh, some of your own plastic enclosures uh, <laughs> from resin? I, I um, was checking it out. It definitely looks interesting. It reminded me of what you were doing with those cartridges uh, a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of cool. Anyway, it's a little bit of filler for the news section, but uh, I think it's worth reading. Okay, well, so the next two items um, come from uh, uh, Nick Morantis. So the the uh, the first one is uh, again we're back to the Pop Star Pilot blog, which I thought we were already at the end with the chapter thirty thirty five. <laughs> so having having shipped everything out, he basically takes some time to do a little bit of a retrospective. Uh, so that's fair. Um, and so he kind of summarizes the project and talks about some cool stuff and that sort of stuff. And he puts a, a mission accomplished banner on it, on it at the end. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's supposed to be ironic or not, but, um, uh, anyway, it's probably really to be the last I would imagine on this blog, uh, unless, you know, some truly huge new development comes up, but, Anyway, we've uh, covered the Popstar Pilot blog a number of times uh, over the past several months, and uh, I guess we get to do it one last time. <laughs> what do you guys think? Well, I'd like to add in there that I uh, finally got my copy, so it's in time for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Came in. Oh, that's good. Very cool. Well, since we're talking about Nick, Nick posted up on the Facebook group um, where he's looking for uh, what he's, at least he says is a rare cocoa pro problem. A rare cocoa program. It may be a problem if you're trying to use it. Who knows? Many of them were. <laughs> but, uh, the, the problem is called Bassembler. Bassembler? I don't know. It's Assembler with a B on the front. And so he's got a, an ad clipping that he's uh, posted. Does the Bassembler is a unique macro assembler lets you intermix assembly language and basic in the same program. You literally have one line assembly and the next line basic, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I agree. It sounds like a cool program. Uh, but you know what it sounds like to me? Uh, I think I covered this um, two or three episodes back uh, when I said that I had acquired a copy of the Demon cartridge for the Dragon. Um, and that basically does exactly what's being described there is it, it lets you go into your basic uh, source code uh, and uh, add a few lines here and there and and you know you basically put your assembly code into the same uh, uh, file as your basic and then the two programs can interoperate from there so I agree it sounds like a cool idea and uh, I don't know if this is going to look a lot like that or it might be it looks a bit different um, looks like it probably comes from a different person uh, or a different group. Um, so anyway, if you have this best assembler, uh, help us out, help Nick out, help him find it, and then let the rest of us know too. And uh, maybe we can all play with that. Sounds kind of cool. It does. Yeah, another thing to track down. That's great. Yeah. Well, let's moving on. Um, the next two aren't really related, except they're both from two guys named Chris. So <laughs> um, I'm sorry, getting a little loopy here. Let's see. The first one is from Chris Martin, and he posts up a couple of pictures. 
in his comment is that Simon Jonasson can probably bring these images to life on a TRS-80 Coco 2. Uh, these are markups of a novel graphics mode that Simon thought up that that could use any one of SG4, comma, P mode or two color modes with eight mode changes per scan line. Yeah, so <laughs> uh, I, I've seen some of this the, these pictures before. I think you know there may be something unique going on here uh, i think if you check out uh uh some of my previous blogging that uh, the the eight changes per scan line is something that i kind of came up with uh in my vdg tricks blog uh in the past uh Simon's maybe extended that and uh, he might be choosing uh maybe from a different set of modes now anyway it's cool uh, it's, it's uh, cool to be able to, to get some extended uh, graphics output from the Coco. Uh, you have to kind of chase the beam, as it were, uh, sort of inspired by how uh, you had to program for the Atari 2600, where you, you actually have to switch modes in time with the, the signal going to the television. Um, but you can do some pretty cool stuff, and it's uh, certainly uh, a lot more attractive, uh, in my opinion, than... Uh, than the normal uh, limited palettes, <laughs> shall we say, of the 6847. So, yeah. anyway, did you guys take a look at these pictures? Yeah, I, I, I saw them out there on Facebook, and, uh, yeah, neat. To, uh, it'd be cool to see those on a Coco, too. Yeah. Yeah, some of those pictures are kind of a tease, eh, because they were uh, you know, taken from other video games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It looks kind so. of strange to see Mega Man on the Coco, too. Yeah, well, Mega Man <laughs> might be cool. <laughs> well, anyway, moving on. I think we mentioned this project uh, maybe last time that uh, from Chris Poacher was working on a Android app that would uh, let you uh, uh, directly load um, images from your Android phone uh, out to your Dragon as a replacement for. Uh, uh, for a cassette tape. <laughs> um, and so this is, I think in reference to that, he's saying, uh, he's saying for whatever reason, he's having trouble uploading to world of dragon. That's sort of a, that's the dragon owners kind of central hub of, of stuff. But he says he's shared on his Google drive, um, that he's going to archive. It's not complete, but does have 750 plus titles so far. So there, if you <laughs> sounds like he's making good progress on his archive, uh, his Android archiving uh, application there. Um, so if you've got a dragon and you'd like to check out 750 <laughs> titles, <laughs> um, um, Chris can help you out. It sounds like a pretty cool achievement, or at least a pretty cool uh, packaging up of of uh, uh, available. Uh, software images for the dragon. Um, like I said, I'm still hoping to see maybe somebody will do a version for the Coco. I would imagine a lot of the codes could certainly be shared between the dragon and Coco Android apps because, you know, <laughs> mostly it's just image translation, you know, format translation and, and making noise out the uh, speakers. <laughs> uh, Chris, good job with this, uh, this tool at some point. Dragon specifically, or maybe a Cocoa version. Either one would be cool. You guys try that out yet? Probably not, since not quite packaged ready for us yet, huh? No, I got the Android phone, so I'm ready on that side. We're, we're close. Well, there you go. Hello, and welcome to Mega Processor. 
All right. <laughs> Getting a little ahead there. All right. Our next item comes from um, Guillaume. Uh, is it Major or Mejor? You have any idea how that's pronounced? Is it just Major? I think it's Major. Guillaume, Guillaume Major. Okay. Well, Guillaume, if I mispronounce it, I'll let you know. Guillaume announces a new version of Coco SDC Explorer is available for download. Uh, new features now possible to mount slash unmount selected disk on drive one by pressing shift plus one. Any file can be mounted regardless of the extension. Uh, have you guys started using this SDC Explorer? It's only been out a couple of months now, I guess. Uh, yeah, I actually uh, started playing with this newest version, and uh, it's pretty cool. I, I, what I like to do is I, I've got a uh, just one one memory card that I have games on. So it's just kind of nice to be able to pop it in and uh, just immediately go to a menu and select what you want and run it. So pretty neat feature. Sure. All right. Well, very cool. Good to know that that's continuing to be in development. And, uh, you know, it's a nice uh, addition to the community there. Yeah, it's really nice to see people, uh, you know, add stuff and uh, do different versions to their programs, uh, the updates. You know, I, yeah. I see that. I mean, a lot of commercial software you buy doesn't get updated, and you know these guys are dedicated, and you know, this is you know, pretty much freeware, and they're they're taking care of it. Yep. Sometimes that's the best way to do it, huh? All right. Well, so the next item, we got a tour of the mega processor. That's from a fellow named James Newman, who I think is the inventor of the mega processor. Um, and so we've got a video uh, of him. Um, he's got a processor he's built out of discrete components. <laughs> um, and uh, so I guess it's at the uh, Center for Computer History in Cambridge. Um, but this is definitely a, a very large machine. He's got it uh, on racks displayed around the room. And in his video, he walks around them and shows you that, you know, here's this part, here's that part. It's kind of neat. It's not any specific processor as far as I know, uh, other than just itself. But it's kind of neat. Uh, you know, kind of life scale of of how, what these circuits are and how how they connect together and you know how big they can be when you insist on uh, uh, transistors in your hand. <laughs> so uh, I thought it was a pretty cool project, and so there for your viewing pleasure. Check it out. All right. Well, moving on, we've got a couple coming from Brett. Brett, uh, of course, is. Uh, He's both our resident, uh, or at least one of our resident physics experts, uh, and uh, uh, also occasionally hear from him uh, as our fourth export, <laughs> fourth programming expert. Um, these two are, uh, links are basically are about physics. The first link is uh, color basic under physics. Uh, so basically, he's adapted the uh, basic uh, color basic 1.2. Uh, change the console driver and uh, hit a few other bits and pieces here and there to make the color basic uh, ROM run as a, a user space program uh, under Fusix. Of course, Fusix is a sort of kernel for retro computers. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, uh, so there you go. If you if you do want to run Fusix but you don't want to give up Color Basic, here's a, a way to uh, still be able to run Fusix and use uh, some of your Color Basic programs. Uh, sounds like it's pretty early days, but uh, it's kind of a neat project. I've kind of done a project that's 
in some ways similar to this, uh, targeting you know, the basic ROM to uh, the Simon 6809. So I have some idea what's involved here. Uh, either way, it's a cool project, and uh, wish you lots of luck, Brett. Uh, keep going with that and uh, do what you can do. There, there also was a project like this uh, for, uh, back in the day. Uh, uh, where you could run uh, Color Basic under OS 9. And that was called, what, RSB, I think it was? Yeah, yeah. Radio Shack Basic. <laughs> anyway, um, usefulness is kind of depends on what you want to do with it, I think. But it can be a useful way to, to preserve some investment in programs that have been written for Color Basic, uh, but you still you want to run them in a new environment. All right, well, cool. So moving on, the next announcement about Fusix uh, from Brett comes up that now you can run Fusix on a Cocoa 2, uh, which you already could do uh, to some extent because Tormod Bolden has a memory to a Cocoa 2 that could provide it to access up to 512K of RAM, I guess. Um, but in this case, this is uh, even somewhat simpler uh, where Alan Cox, who's kind of the the, uh, the main guy behind Fusix, uh, has uh, now got a version where you can put a lot of Fusix into a ROM cartridge and plug that in and, and boot it on a Coco 2. So there you go. If uh, <laughs> if you've been dying to do Fusix but couldn't dedicate your Coco 3 to it, now you can use a Coco 2 for it. <laughs> I would like to get a way to do it. Uh, I haven't got there yet. How about you guys? I haven't got there yet myself either, but I, I've been I've been watching it all with interest. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. Okay, next item. Not cocoa at all, but uh, you know, uh, should appeal to the aging geek in all of us, I guess. The headline: Steve Wozniak still brainstorms ways the Apple II could have been better. Nearly 40 years later, Steve Wozniak still brainstorms ways the Apple II could have been better. Wozniak. Uh, Maybe not quite as well known as Steve Jobs, but uh, for those who do know, Steve Wozniak was was sort of the the engineering muscle behind the early days at Apple and uh, the true designer of the Apple II, uh, even the Apple One. Anyway, the article uh, talks a bit about uh, how um, Woz, as he's affectionately known, awoke one night in Quito, Ecuador, and came up with a way to save a chip or two from the Apple II. And a trivial way to have the two grades of the Apple II be different, um, which uh, they kind of come in, a, in one of the video modes uh, of the Apple II. You end up with two grades, and they basically look the same, but I guess there's a way he could have made them look more different. Anyway, 30 years too late, as he says. But um, well, it's, uh, never uh, too I don't know. Just uh, I was gonna say, it's never too late. <laughs> you could do it now, too. Good project idea right there. Uh... You know, maybe the Waz could re-release something. Yeah, <laughs> that might be cool. Um, but so anyway, I guess I threw that in there just as, uh, you know, I think a lot of us have at times had projects that took over our lives um, and uh, maybe were hard to let go. Um, most of us don't have the financial success behind the projects uh, that Mr. Wozniak had, but, um you know, it's nice to know that uh, even the rich geeks uh, have it happen to them, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving on, I've got a link to a, a Vectrix project. I don't know who this person is. They go by CocoVec, and that's K-O-K-O-Vec. Coco, CocoVec? 
Yeah. That, that's a cool name yeah. if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if that KOKO is supposed to hook back to the COCO Coco like we like or not. But maybe it is. You know, the Vectrix, of course, has a certain link to the Coco because they both have the 6809 processor. Yeah. Um, there's another similarity between the Vectrix and the Coco in that they both have uh, analog joysticks. They're slightly different um, in terms of what how the power supplies are handled, for example. Um, but not all they're analog joysticks, but they're analog joysticks that basically work as voltage dividers. Uh, which is a little bit different from the analog joysticks that you'd use on a PC or an Apple II. Anyway, the reason why I mentioned that similarity, um, this this um, video shows somebody uh, using what's called the Vectrix PS2 adapter. And it's like, well, PS2, well, no. At first I thought they meant like the keyboard or mouse, right? But no, this is PS2 as in PlayStation 2. Uh, so as in the Sony PlayStation. And uh, so they've got, uh, particularly they're trying to use it with a, a certain game called Robot Arena, which I don't know a lot about, but I guess it's a game that can benefit from a lot of controller input. <laughs> and so what they're showing is a PlayStation 2 controller, which of course uh, has two thumbsticks uh, and then has a set of four buttons uh, at your thumb on the left and another set of four buttons at your thumb on the right. And so if you think about it, um, the two joysticks, they're analog sticks on the PS2. Um, so whatever you're doing, you'd, um, you could convert them similarly and plug them into the two joystick ports on a Coco. And you could have those two joystick inputs. And then if you use a technique similar to what we were using on the Sega Genesis adapters, at least on the Coco 3, you could have four button inputs on each of the two joystick ports. And so theoretically, whatever this person is doing to hook this PlayStation 2 controller up to the Vectrix, you could take essentially the same kind of fundamental circuits and mix it in with what we've done to support the four button Genesis uh, controllers. And you could have a PlayStation 2 interface to a Coco 3. Now, of course, you need a game that could take advantage of all that controller input to make that useful, but it's within the realm of possibility. So uh, I don't know if that's exciting to you guys. I don't know if it's exciting to our listeners, but it was kind of exciting to me. I'm not uh, really sure what kind of game would benefit from that, but I would love to hear people's ideas. What do you guys think? Yeah, I thought it was really cool. I, I checked that out. Uh, you know, anything to do with joysticks... Uh... Definitely gets my interest on the Coco. So. <laughs> I, I don't have a Vectrix, but it, that sounds like it'd be a cool uh, addition. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, the, the Vectrix is just sort of a stand-in for the Coco in this sense. Um, we could do something. Theoretically, we could have the PlayStation 2 adapter plugged into the to the Coco. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not much of a double-thumb gamer, so I'm not sure what games we would have that would make use of that. But it looks to me like it, that's an, a controller that we could enable on the Coco at least on the Coco 3, um, we just would need software to make good use of it, <laughs> and the other which is nice always thing. the case, right? Yeah, for sure. And uh, the other nice thing is that PS2 joystick that's very available. I mean, you can get them pretty much anywhere. Yep. Nice to have access to something if uh, you're making a new project. All right. Well, the next item, 
um, comes from Chris Osborne, and uh, he's uh, also someone who goes by Foztex <laughs> um, on Twitter and, and kind of in general in the retro community. Um, and I'm not sure what's sparked this uh, desire, but uh, he declared a uh, Coco Weekend uh, with a high score competition <laughs> uh, so a couple of weeks ago now. But uh, he he basically said to hear post your high scores on the you know who will give out no final decals and uh, uh, so he got some people to participate and uh, they were posting on the list and trying to get the decals I guess he's got a little website uh, sh- that shows uh, some of the results and there were a number of participants uh, did you guys participate in any of this no I was actually bummed because when I I found out about it. It was kind of halfway through, and uh, I was just unfortunately swamped with work. Like I, I seriously had no time, and uh, I, I wanted to do Farfall. I, I wanted to, uh, yeah, score going on Farfall and submit that. So unfortunately, did Farfall. There was a Donkey Kong remix uh, in there. Yeah. Oh, uh, Chris. Diddy, uh, there was a Farfall. In clouds there? and balloons. No. Oh, okay. No, no Farfall. Oh, okay. Those decal stickers are pretty cool, though. Uh, they look really nice. Yeah, they look nice. It's just cool to see somebody, you know, kind of uh, gin up some excitement in the community. Yeah, and cool to see some other people play it along. So yeah, I thought that different. was nice. Yeah, it's good they're going to have cool. another one. It's, it's a good, good way for people to get involved and participate. Yeah, have they announced uh, the next one when they're going to do that? I missed the announcement. I don't yeah. think so. I think he just said he's going to do it again, but... Uh... Well, we got to be on the lookout. I, I don't want to miss this one. All right. Well, moving on. To, uh, got a new website from Diego Brizo, and basically he's created a, a website uh, for advertising uh, currently available hardware and software. And he has services as well, but I don't think anybody's listed under services. But currently available wares uh, for the cocoa, and uh, he wants to have that available so that. I guess just as a central site so that uh, people who miss the announcement of when something's going to be, uh, uh, you know, when something comes available or whatever, um, they have a central location to kind of make that information available as long as it's, as long as the items are still available for sale or whatever. So um, what do you guys think of this CocoWare site? Well, I think it's a good idea. I've got about, three things I need to uh, send to Diego to get listed. There was some discussion of uh, putting used items out there. I think that always just falls apart. I think it would be just good to have this stuff is for sale. That's, you know, product, new, new products. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah, That's the difference here, I guess it is. uh, It's all new stuff. Uh, So it's not just a, it's not a replacement for eBay. Uh, it's more like a replacement for Amazon. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and I, I can definitely see it filling a uh, a need in the community, especially people that are just joining. And you know, it can be it can take you a while to find out where all this all these different uh, resellers are. It's nice to have one cool. central location for that. Well, moving on, yeah. So this is another announcement from Guillaume Major. Uh, I guess I didn't get them all slid together like I thought I did. Anyway. So you know, he's done this in the past where he's uh, taken uh, uh, AGI games and made them available on the Coco 3 using, uh, uh, you know, I guess uh, the AGI interpreter from what, uh, King's Quest or whatever. Um, 
anyway, so for those who don't know, AGI, what does that stand for? Uh, yeah, Adventure Game Interpreter. Um, and so what this was is basically a game engine uh, created by Sierra Online, which was a company back in the day that created a lot of adventure games, particularly graphical, uh, or at least partially graphical adventures. So basically, these games uh, were basically just data files paired with a program. And the program basically stayed the same across a collection of data files. And so the data files were actually what implemented the games. And um, so he's used this technique in the past to make some uh, retro uh, Sierra games available on the Coco 3 that were never actually released on the Coco 3. And so now, uh, and maybe he's done this before with some fan-made games, so people can go out and make AGI games using tools that are available on the internet. So you can write an original game and, and implement it in AGI and play it using an AGI interpreter on a, on a retro computer in case, and then in this case, the Coco 3. And so he's got one. And he says, I ported another AGI fan-made adventure game to the Coco 3. The game was developed in 2001. Is inspired by the Space Quest series and has good story and graphics. Uh, although Steve never finished it, his game is quite large and uh, and offers a myriad of puzzles to keep you busy for several hours. Uh, I'd say it's about seventy five percent complete. <laughs> um, anyway, so it's cool. It's uh, an, another game available on the Coco Three. Um, I just think it's cool as a hack that uh, even though it's sort of supposed to work, that doesn't mean it will. <laughs> so it's cool that somebody's figured out the details of taking an AGI, you know, data file and uh, getting it running on the AGI interpreter from uh, th that's available on the Coco. Pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, and it, people are playing it because there's lots of traffic out there. People, you know, asking about. Uh, how to get yeah. through different levels and stuff. So yeah, very fun. Yeah, very cool. So thanks, Guillaume, for making that available to us. Very cool. All right. Uh, all right, one more, not not quite Cocoa related, but still retro uh, <laughs> oriented announcement. Uh, this kind of just sort of pairs with the original announcement about how Microsoft CMD.exe from Windows 10 um, on the other end of the spectrum, subject or, or title of this piece is FOSS DOS for 21st Century Hardware. So FOSS means free or open source software. DOS means, well, DOS or disk operating system <laughs> for 21st Century Hardware. And basically this is just saying that um, the free DOS project is alive and kicking and is scheduled for a Christmas Day release for free DOS uh, 1.2, I guess. And so FreeDOS is, is, you know, in the way that Linux is a, is a free operating system that you can download and run uh, a Unix-like operating system on your computer at home, FreeDOS is similarly a free operating system that you can download and run on your computer at home. But in this case, it's a instead of being a Unix-like system, it is a system very much like uh, DOS or MS-DOS from the past, you know. Probably, if you're like me, the first time I heard of it is, well, why would you want that? <laughs> um, but it can be kind of useful, particularly if you want to run old DOS software. There are uh, a number of pieces of software out there that are written uh, for 
you know, for a while it was a, the easiest way to do a BIOS update. For example, was uh, to you could boot up a free DOS <laughs> and run your DOS-based BIOS update uh, software. Um, particularly if you didn't have DOS installed on on your machine at all. But uh, I don't know. At this point, I'm not sure. I'm not really sure what the good reason is in in 2016 or 2017 to have DOS on your PC. Um, but some people still definitely seem to think there are some good reasons, and I, I assume some of those are people who want to run old DOS games. Uh, maybe there's some other, uh, you know, more serious reasons, shall we say? Well, I know there's some probably some old hardware you could probably uh, talk well, to. Uh, I mean, DOS. there's some fact, some basic programs, and I use it actually. You do use FreeDOS on my uh, PC that that holds my EEPROM programmer. So uh, <laughs> that was my first thought right off the bat. Yeah, it was EEPROM programmers. Yeah, yeah. I knew I had some old software that only run under DOS for uh, doing some relay control. So yeah, cool to be able to use the same software. Yeah, that's great, and that it runs on new hardware of today. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of cool. It's nice to know that stuff is out there for people that need it, uh, and I might be somebody who needs it. So, uh, <laughs> so it's good to know it's out there for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of interested in it myself. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna you know hide as I say this, but I'm kind of a DOS fan. That's uh, kind of neat to see. <laughs> yeah, it is neat to see. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that was written for bidirectional parallel port, and if uh, if right. that supports it on new hardware, then you know, it'll keep living. That's great. Yeah, that that's cool. Yep. All right. Well, moving on, our final two items of news. Um, both come from uh, Darren Atkinson, and uh, both are about the SDC DOS for the Coco SDC. Uh, and so the first one came in uh, December second. Uh, says an updated SCD, SDC DOS version 1.3 is available. New features in this version support for running an autoexec.base program at system startup. Hold down the shift key to suppress it. Uh, a new exp command, which can be used to quickly mount and run a program like the SDC Explorer. Let's see. Well, write mem location or command will now write to the FEO to FEFF locations in the flash banks when running on a Cocoa 3. Uh, likewise, copy mem command now reads from flash for these locations on a Cocoa 3. Cool. Anyway, uh, links in the show notes, you can check out the whole announcement. So that sounds like good news, right? And then the next announcement from Darren is on a week later on December 9th. Uh, another update to SDC DOS is available, now version 1.4. No new, new features since 1.3. Fixed a couple of bugs that were reported. Uh, if you've installed version 1.3 and used disk EdTASM or Robert Galt's EdTASM 6309, then you'll definitely want to update to 1.4. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, if you're an SDC, a Cocoa SDC user, probably want to update uh, your SDC DOS. Uh, 1.3 has some cool features. Brought with it a couple of bugs, as features sometimes do. So you probably want to go on straight on to 1.4. Yeah, I got to get so my guys, flashed over. Yeah, you got you, you got the 1.4 update going. Yeah, that's how I got uh, got my games, uh, my my SDC Explorer starting automatically when I power it up. It's a it's a neat feature. Thanks, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> cool, very cool. That the Coco SDC is one of the most exciting uh, developments in the Coco community over the past couple of years, and it's cool to think that it's uh, still getting some some new features, new attention. 
All right. Well, that's all the news that we've got for this month. Uh, so we're going to take a little break and uh, we'll be back in a moment with some feedback. The International Color Computer Weather Service has issued the following alert for Earth's Northern Hemisphere, above approximately 26 degrees north latitude, effective until 8 p.m. May 1st, 2017. Cooler temperatures combined with fewer daylight hours have created conditions conducive to indoor activity. Seasonal affective disorder is a type of depression that typically occurs each year during fall and winter. To combat these and other possible effects, hibernate indoors and use a TRS-80 color computer, MC-10, Dragon, or similar color computer, as frequently as possible. Exposure to colors such as green, magenta, buff, cyan, and orange have been shown to offer relief from the effects of seasonal affective disorder. Owners of color computers should go to a basement or interior room in your home or business where you keep color computer equipment. Seek shelter now. Once in place, use your color computer to program, play games, or otherwise pursue creative activities. You may enhance your experience by reading computer publications and manuals, listening to vintage computing podcasts, soldering electronic parts to printed circuit boards. Employing oscilloscopes, voltometers, logic analyzers, and other tools. Interacting with other color computer owners can also be useful in combating seasonal affective disorder. Planning and creating projects or demonstrations to exhibit at Cocoa Fest and Tandy Assembly is also strongly recommended. The International Color Computer Weather Service has issued this alert. All right, now it's time for some feedback. Uh, we have feedback from, uh, well, we got like, uh, three items of feedback this time. It was from a, uh, well, friend of the show, shall we say, uh, John Mark Mobley. Uh, John Mark lets us know that the Oregon Trail board game is now in stock at Target. Uh, many retro computing uh, aficionados will be familiar with Oregon Trail. Which I think Oregon Trail was primarily an Apple II game, and maybe on the PC. Uh, I don't, I don't think there was an Oregon Trail for the Cocoa, was there? No, not that I know of. Yeah, I don't think so. But anyway, it's available. So the Oregon Trail is definitely a, a well-known game for a certain uh, people of a certain age, shall we say? You know, the expression "you've died of dysentery" <laughs> comes from the Oregon Trail. <laughs> And so anyway, there's a, apparently a board game version of it, and it's available at Target. The price, I'm not sure of. I think John had said that he had seen it at like $10. I think when I looked it up, it was $12. I don't know. The exact price, you'll have to figure out for yourself. But uh, if playing the Oregon Trail as a board game appeals to you, uh, you may want to go and check out what Target has to offer. And you can pick up Robot Turtles while you're at it. Well, there you go. Robot Turtles. <laughs> Um, this one is from L. Curtis Boyle. Uh, is referring to my tech segment from last month. Um, I talked about uh, uh, basically uh, playing around with the various uh, being able to kind of abuse them a little bit to, to draw <laughs> uh, draw in one mode and display in another and get near weird effects that way. 
Um, well, so he says in the text segment, you probably should have also mentioned the pcopy command. Um, which, uh, sure, I mean, pcopy is a useful command, uh, and it's uh, an optimized way of copying data around, I think, uh, probably faster things that you might do, but it's sort of in the same vein of, you know, draw in one place and, and then use pcopy to, to, to scoop up the data and, and then be able to display it somewhere else. Um, and again if you if you draw it one way and p copy it and then switch modes and, and p copy it back out to somewhere else you probably get some strange effects there as well so if any of that uh, you know uh, basic graphics programming uh, stuff appealed to you from last month's tech segment then you you probably want to make sure you have p copy in your arsenal of commands all right so one more uh this one comes from kevin braun uh, it's really directed to me, I guess. So Farfall, what is needed to play it? Uh, do we really not cover Farfall enough? <laughs> <laughs> um, Don't ask me that. It's not. Anyway, Farfall, uh, of course, uh, plays on a uh, a color computer one or two. Uh, it does not operate on a color computer three. Uh, that frustrates some people to no end. That was actually kind of intentional on my part, uh, trying to to keep a little extra value in the Cocos 1 and 2, and also to reach out to the, the, the Dragon community. Anyway, uh, people ask if I ever do a, a Coco 3 version of Farfall. Say maybe I would. At this point, I think probably not. I did do an Apple 2 version, but that probably doesn't solve anything for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so Kevin, uh, like I said, once you have the Coco 1 or 2, it is the cartridge. Um, uh, those are available uh, from me. I've been asking you know, forty dollars uh, so far, selling them at a rate I'm comfortable with. Um, <laughs> so price drop may come eventually, but I'm not quite ready to do it. You may want to watch eBay just in case I decide to uh, to put them there. Um, but uh, again, I haven't done that yet either. If I could throw my two cents in, uh, Kevin, it is definitely worth picking up a Coco one or two just even for that game. Just for far, far along. <laughs> Neil is a fan, for sure. <laughs> he may like it more than I do. <laughs> Neil even has the oh, Apple man. version, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. That that actually inspired <laughs> me to get an Apple IIc, believe it or not. Was this for that yeah. game? I wanted to see what it was much. like. Do you play the Apple version much? Uh, not as much as the, uh, the, the Coco 2 version. No, no. Yeah, it, it's not as polished. It could use a little extra work, I think. But anyway, well, maybe someday there too. But honestly, I need a new game. Uh, I did have Xmas Rush, but uh, probably want something even newer. Hopefully, that's what uh, the Christmas break will do for me. Give me a new game. Anyway, well, thanks for all the feedback, uh, people. Uh, uh, obviously, we love getting feedback from you uh, positive, negative, uh, indifferent. Uh, I don't know who would send indifferent feedback, but that would definitely be interesting to receive. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you guys are doing okay, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, we do love to hear from you. Again, those are the email addresses we discussed earlier in the show, but basically feedback at cococrew.org will, will reach all of us, and uh, uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, well... I think we're going to take another break, and uh, we'll be back with uh, 
the host discussion and or uh, you know the rest of our show the radio shack battery club hour presents the coco crew christmas podcast sponsored by radio shack maker of world famous computers peripherals and batteries starring john linville Neil Blanchard, and your humble announcer, Mike Rowan. So warm up those hot toddies and curl up next to the fire. It's time for the Coco Crew Christmas Podcast. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. I have a Coco 3, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand computers, I guess. I like playing games and word processing and programming and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who could take a wonderful thing like a color computer and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. Welcome back to our host discussion segment. We mentioned uh, kind of offhand in our, our last episode, uh, kind of came out to uh, the discussion of uh, repacks. And uh, we sort of said, well, did, do, is, does anybody still do those? Or uh, well, maybe we should discuss that. Maybe that'd be a good host discussion topic. Uh, this month, uh, because of our uh, how imaginative we are, we decided to uh, to revisit uh, <laughs> that earlier topic. Um, so, uh, so I guess that's where we're at. Is we're going to discuss the topic of well, what is a repack? Uh, how do you do them? What? Why would you do them? And uh, you know, do they still serve a purpose? You know, but before we get to the, do they still serve a purpose or we should probably talk about what are they in the first place. So who wants to take the lead? Mike, do you want to talk about a re repacks, what they are? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, a repack is, you know, taking a, in our case, a color computer and uh, taking the motherboard out of its case and, uh, you know, placing it into a custom case, you know, kind of like PC modding is these days with modern PCs. Uh, uh, People have done the same thing with with color computers. We've seen uh, people put them in uh, PC towers and Tandy 1000 uh, cases. And I think the the notion or, or the reason that people want to do that is to uh, you know make it more convenient. You know, you've got that big multi-pack hanging off the side, and people think, boy, it'd be nice just to have a you know a tower or desktops, so all the disk drives, and everything is all in one unit that I can just plug in, turn on and off, and uh, there have been some neat ones we've seen. I've, I've seen them in uh, like old uh, TRS-80 Model 3 cases. And uh, uh, so, but that's basically what a repack is. Yeah, right. So I remember, um, like I said, when I first got into the hobby, uh, which would have been uh, the mid-90s, uh, it was definitely a popular thing. Uh, lots of people were doing repacks. Um, discussion on the list, you know, how do you do this? How do, what do you do about the multi-pack when you do a repack into a PC tower? 
Um, how do you run the power supplies, all that sort of thing. Nowadays, um, well, and of course, all of that stuff was about using the, the old baby AT style uh, uh, cases. Uh, which nowadays, if you want to even get one of those, <laughs> you have to go to the same uh, <laughs> retro section of eBay to find the, the cases <laughs> as you would to find the cocoa. But, uh, you know, I wonder... You know, you mentioned putting them like in a Tandy 1000 or Tandy 3000 or whatever case or a Model 3 case. Uh, I wonder if that has more appeal just because of the the retro nicheness of it. I don't know. Um, well, now I, now I mean, you're I, up against the uh, it's kind of sacrilege to <laughs> hack another <laughs> retro computer. That's true. <laughs> put a different one inside of it. I was just going to say that. True. Yeah. yeah. If you go to just show one thing to, to do the other, it's probably not so good. But, you know, what if you um, – I wonder if there's any value in putting one in inside some other kind of box, you know, a statue or, or a, a, you know, a, a, a Care Bear or, a <laughs> or, or, you know, an old uh, – who knows? I wonder if there's any kind of kitschy kind of thing to put them in that would be – kind of fun putting them in an aquarium case or something like that well a repack's always something i've wanted to do in fact i've actually gotten about halfway through a couple of repack projects that and i was building a case from scratch but i just mm-hmm. you know, just was not going the way i wanted to and you know i'd get distracted by other projects and stuff but i those yeah i could see that uh that might be kind of cool uh i remember um when I went, my first fest was at, you know, it was actually PinFest 2000. And there was a fellow there, can't quite remember his name. It seemed like he had like a, a you know, a nom de guerre, shall we say, a nom de guerre of Grizzly or something like that. It was like Grizzly Enterprises or something. Yeah, okay, yeah, uh, I know who you're talking about, yeah. Um, And that guy had a case that he made out of uh, clear acrylic that he kind of built the case up and bonded together with whatever you use to bond acrylic to itself. Um, and that was pretty cool looking and that it, he had, you know, bent the, the acrylic in some ways and glued it in other places and whatever. That was a neat looking case. I, I think, I think I've seen pictures of that from Pinfest uh, on the web. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. I could definitely see having a custom case, something that you built yourself or something that was equally kind of unique or, or interesting. Beyond that, uh, that's one thing that I've never quite understood on the, you know, why you want to take something that's kind of interesting looking like a cocoa and stuff it into something that's boring looking like a, a beige box PC, uh, <laughs> especially since the cutouts and stuff aren't really correct for it. So you, you're always kind of in a compromised position for running your plugs and wires and that sort of thing. Um, I guess it could be some convenience there. Uh, and like you say, it's probably easier to carry around your beige box PC uh, than it is to carry around, uh, you know, the multi-pack under one arm and the cocoa under the other and the CM8 balanced on top of your head or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the day, uh, these repacks were more common because, you know, like a, a baby AT case that was that was in. I mean, that was the cool thing, right? So if you, if you had a cocoa, 
you know, and every, all your friends had a, say, a 286 or a 386, you know, you wanted to kind of put it in that case. Uh, that That's just my two cents, though. Maybe they're not as common. Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking is the, the time that I associate most with the repacks was is also the time that I would associate where they were still more, call them diehard or holdout, like productivity users, you know, cocoa productivity users, where there were still holdouts. Right. People that would still insist that the cocoa was the most productive thing for them, that that was their best computer they could have, um, and uh, you know that's probably uh, uh, you know if the, if you really were trying to use the cocoa as your day to day computer, um, maybe that somehow made more sense to to pack it up into a the PC style case, you know, have it all in a sort of convenient form factor. Um, you know, yeah, it's, just, the- it's just the uh, evolution of things because, uh, I mean, if you look at it, there's a lot of similarities between the, the TRS-80 Model 1 and the color computer as far as how it's expanded. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, you got you got a floppy disk with a bunch of cables coming off of it, controller plugged into maybe an MPI, the MPI plugged in there. So it gets it gets messy quickly. And, uh, you know, uh, and, and you look at what the, the prototype for the Coco 4, all that stuff would have probably been internalized. You kind of saw it with the, the Tandy 1000. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, HX and yeah, always the uh, there's always the interesting mods. Uh, you know, one I'll never forget is from Coco Fest last year, and that uh, tape deck. Someone put a Coco two in it. <laughs> yeah, deck. that's right, in a tape deck case. Yeah, you know, it's I was interesting on that too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, now yeah, is really a, a prime prime time to to do a repack. We we got the uh, you know, if if you still want an MPI, we got the the mini the mini MPI is out. Uh, you've got, you know, different VGA adapters that you could put inside. So uh, it's, to me, it's mostly about cleaning up the spaghetti of all the wires and just uh, having it in one nice clean package on your desktop. Yeah, a nice small footprint. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah well, like like you say, I think you mentioned having a custom case. Uh, that, that actually does appeal to me. You know, like you said, especially you combine the kind of a unique appearance with the cleaning up some of the extra, you know, cables and wires and having parts plugged together or whatever. Um, I can see that. Uh, I guess that was always a stumbling block for me is when you say repack, I always think of just somebody who's just shoved the guts of a cocoa inside of a, a beige box, a BBAT case. <laughs> Never thought that really looked all that good anyway, you know, and you still, you know, you got the yeah. separate keyboard and the monitor you're not really saving that much it's a maybe a little cleaner but not a lot and it doesn't look like a cocoa you know right but but yeah something you know uh, more unique in the case or whatever i think that could be pretty cool well now we've got another project for neil then is to go into the custom case work and uh, <laughs> business for that put some funky lights in there and yeah <laughs> Yeah, get some of those blue lights or whatever that go inside yeah. the cases. Yeah. Cut a, that's what we need, though. We need, to, we need to cut a window in the tops of our Cocoa 3s. It'd <laughs> 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 be fun, don't you think? And have the, the colored lights. And uh, maybe we could have two different colored lights 
and one would be like the normal 0.89 megahertz and then one would so that'd be blue and then you'd put on the 1.78 megahertz spoke the, and then the, it'd be red. <laughs> the turbo mode and, and yeah. we could liquid we could liquid cool the gimme chip that'd be awesome yeah, there we there we go. yeah yeah <laughs> i kind of did something similar to that uh, you saw it mike when you were here uh that that coco 3 i bought off wally it had a um cloud 9 ps2 adapter so what Wally had done is he put uh, where the keyboard was. It's not in there anymore. It was an acrylic a plexiglass panel. And I actually put a blue light in there, and I used uh, Mike's uh, Coco on uh, mod there. And that, that thing is great. Yeah, that was a, a cool little, you had that light inside of it. So, yeah, I forgot about that. That was cool yeah. with the plexiglass where the keyboard goes. Yeah, it had a little switch for the light. And uh, you got to have that Coco on mod, too, you know. You still sell those, Mike? Still have some, yeah. Put that up on that site there. Yeah, yeah. Got a lot of stuff to throw out at Coco Wares. Yeah. Farfall needs to make it there too. For sure. Yeah. I've got the emails. I just need to send it off. And uh well cool. Well, um any uh what else do we need to say about the the topic here on the repacks? Kind of a period that I missed out on because uh, you know, I think a lot of that was going on uh uh well, certainly I couldn't go to any of the fests there. We just kinda see about it and uh be interesting if people had uh photos of it uh send them send them to us we'd, we'd like to see them yeah we used to see uh, you'd see them at coco fest where people had done a repack but i haven't seen any of those in a while i wonder so i wonder there if that's an issue you know if you, if you repack them do they then get misidentified and then thrown out when uh you know when somebody passes or whatever I wonder if that's an if that's a danger. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's not a huge concern, but. And then there was a there was a product called a Coco Expander. I've I'd only seen drawings of that. I've never actually seen one. Have you seen one of those? Um, so it's like a multi pack replacement. Is that right? No, this was a this was like you took the Coco and you replaced the bottom of it. It was like a molded case. You could you could uh, just move. So you had the same top. But you had like a, a thicker bottom that had enough room to put disk drives in, so you could put everything oh, inside. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that sounds kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've seen that. Uh, either have I, but I, I like the sound of that. Yeah, I, I was thinking that was a Chris Hawks project, actually, but uh, I should look that up. Chris Hawks? Eh? He's holding out on us on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that sounds kind of cool. The one thing I'll, I will say uh, I'll add in with the repacks is you, you have to be very knowledgeable, at least in my opinion. I mean, because you, you have to know electronics for one thing, and uh, you have to be kind of savvy with, uh, you know, just just modifying things like you know whether you're you're working with plastic or metal. You, know, you got to do some drilling, some cutting. It, it does take skill to do a a proper uh, repack. And I think that's what appeals to me about doing it from scratch rather than just pushing it into an existing case as you, could, right. you know, you, you pick up the skills of, you know, uh, working with a uh, metal or plastic or whatever you're using. So it's a good learning experience. Yeah, exactly. Well, cool. Well, that's uh, expanded things a little bit. Uh, something uh, to look forward to or look for the expander thing. Uh, maybe those will show up in the, the next uh, 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 auction at Cocoa Fest. Uh, <laughs> Put the bug in someone's ear. If we could just get the uh, the Glenside guys to listen to the podcast, then uh, maybe that would happen. Preferably, uh, <laughs> preferably if you can bring three of them. 
Yeah, uh, three would be good. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Well, that's uh, like I said, that's an, an aspect of the hobby that um, I'd seen more of in the past, and I uh, haven't seen in a while. But you know, you make some good uh, arguments there about um, you know the practical benefits of getting rid of some of the cables and some of the interconnect, and and maybe the aesthetic benefits of uh, you know a custom or semi-custom case. Um, you know, the, this expander notion you're talking about sounds really cool where you'd, you'd you know, have a replacement case bottom or, or that <laughs> you could slide some drives into. That sounds really cool to me. Um, you know, and, uh, so, so I don't know, maybe there's some more, uh, maybe there's some more ground to be plowed there and uh, extend the hobby in another direction. So that's cool. And if we encouraged you uh, to do a repack, please, Keep your original case, uh, you know, don't don't hack up the original Coco 3 case. That's kind of sacrilege. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Put it, put it aside. Put it in the cupboard. Forget about it. Don't get rid of the keyboard. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, does that beat it to death then? Is that, Are we done? Yeah, that's a wrap on that one. All right. Well, thanks, guys. I think that was a good discussion. And, uh We'll uh, look forward to whatever we come up with next month for for our host discussions. And uh, so now I think we'll, we'll take another break and move on to the rest of the show. There go the bells, I hate the bells. Who plays the bells? Please stop the bells. There go the bells, I hate the bells. Who plays the bells? Please stop the bells. Then starts the singing, I hate the singing. Who is that singing? Why do they sing? You may think this is ridiculous, but I am very serious. There go the bells, I hate the bells. There go the bells, I hate the bells. Ding, dong, ding, dong. It's a Radio Shack Merry Christmas. This year, I needed to give a real family pleaser. Honey, please help me with this budget. How about a new game, Dad? Please. And I found it. Radio Shack's Color Computer 2. On sale for just $99.95. It entertains, educates, manages. It's expandable and affordable. Now that really pleases me. The Color Computer 2. Sale price for Christmas. Only at Radio Shack. All right. Hello, Coco Cruisers. Welcome back to another technical segment with John. <laughs> uh, this time we're going to do something a little bit different. Rather than dig into uh, a deep technical discussion of how a certain piece of hardware works or talking about how to do things with a, a coding project, uh, this time we're going to have a bit of a review or recommendation of a book that I think many of the people who enjoy these segments <laughs> would find rewarding to read. The book in question is by Mr. John, J-O-H-N, Acock, A-Y-C-O-C-K. The name of the book is Retro Game Archaeology, and that's R-E-T-R, 
R-E-T-R-O-G-A-M-E, Retro Game, Archaeology, A-R-C-H-E-O-L-O-G-Y, which seems like a strange way to spell archaeology to me, but perhaps it's canonical to spell it that way somewhere within the British Empire or whatever, because Mr. Acock, I see, is a computer scientist uh, in uh, a school in Canada. Yes, Department of Computer Science, University of Calgary, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. So anyway, what is special about this book? Well, this book uh, obviously is talking about retro game archaeology. Well, so what is that? Uh, if I can borrow a passage from the book itself, I would define retro game archaeology more precisely in terms of three T's. The goal of retro game archaeology is to understand the tools, techniques, and technology used in old games implementation. <laughs> so, uh, that kind of sets the stage a bit. Um, and then, uh, if you'll bear with me as I read a, a short passage from the preface, uh, says, um, I'm not very good at playing computer games. However, through sheer luck, I happen to be alive using computers and playing games at more or less the right time to have experienced the retro game era. I also happened to learn programming and study computer science at a time when there was a strong emphasis on low-level work, when getting a program working sometimes meant being clever enough to sidestep all kinds of limitations. <laughs> so that speaks to me and probably speaks to a number of you in the audience uh, who have a, a more technical background, um, and that may explain part of your interest in retro computers uh, is uh, that the perhaps greater simplicity uh, and yet greater complexity in some ways of dealing with them uh, back in the day. Um, it, it has a certain draw. So anyway, he goes on later to say, What I found surprising in my research was that many retro game implementation techniques had modern applications and not only in games. I won't go so far as to say that retro games were the first to use these techniques or that modern uses are directly inspired by retro games, but I will claim that retro games are an interesting way to learn about them. Furthermore, having taught computer science students in university for many years, I think it's fair to say that modern programmers aren't always exposed to these techniques, nor to the constraints that precipitated their use. This book is an attempt to fix that. Okay, so enough on the sales job, I guess. What, <laughs> now that we have any idea what retro game archaeology is, you know, where you're trying to learn a bit about uh, techniques used in, back in the day and maybe how they can be useful beyond that, what exactly is in the book? Uh, so, this is a hardcover book. Uh, I think it's um, 222 pages. So, it's not super short, but it's not an overwhelmingly large volume. Um, it's got about, what, nine chapters with, um, you know, titles like Memory Management, uh, Data Compression, Procedural Content Generation, obfuscation and optimization, a couple others. Anyway, as you read the book, it takes a number of examples and picks out um, from a wide variety of programs, uh, many of which, well, some of which aren't even really game programs at all. Uh, I know one of the examples is reuses the Emacs editor, <laughs> which uh, has traditionally had a, a rather interesting way of saving state um, partly because the Emacs is built so much around uh, a Lisp uh, programming implementation <laughs> and it can take a while to reload all that Lisp code 
Uh, so they invented some kind of uh, sort of a, a trick to getting that code back up and running quickly when you restart the editor. Uh, I'll uh, leave it as an exercise for the reader to discover more about that. Uh, but it also talked about some older games, some text-based Unix games, um, uh, old adventure games. And then it spreads out from there to talk some about um, Zork and other Infogom games and uh, some of the Scott Adams games. But it just covers a variety of topics, um, things like how uh, some of these games use virtual machines inside them, uh, how, um, you know... That made some, in some cases, the games, uh, the game code itself portable between different data chunks, so that you could uh, use uh, the same game engine uh, to play different games. Which you see some examples of that in our news segment uh, <laughs> with regard to Guillaume Major uh, uh, porting uh, an AGI-based game to the Coco 3. That was, you know, whoever wrote that game probably doesn't even know what the Coco 3 is. <laughs> um, um, Talks about um, data compression and how strings can be compressed in odd ways and were compressed in odd ways in some of the text-based adventure games. It uh, talks about the use of uh, a couple of different techniques for generating random numbers, or at least numbers that are if not actually random, at least random enough to use for uh, uh, being useful in a game. Um, and not just using them for, like, say, random events, like, uh, you know, explosions or or uh, attacks or whatever, but also talks about how that can be used to generate um, mazes and, you know, wall locations or um, riverbank locations, say, in River Raid, <laughs> or uh, a couple other stuff. You know, it's just, there's a lot of stuff in here, a lot of books and a lot of examples, I'm sorry, a lot of pages and a, with a lot of examples of uh, just old code and and many of them are down to the level of actual showing assembly code some of which is actually like 6502 assembly code some of which is the one annoyance is he kind of tends to use, fall back on a a pseudo code for representing the assembly language that um, is probably supposed to be easier to read than assembly code but for some, being someone who could, could have read the assembly code I actually found it more distracting to read his pseudocode in many cases <laughs> um but yeah he talks about a number of things in games um talks about how the games are protected uh, he talks about um how data can be scrambled um uh he talks about the use of virtual machines and how there's different ways to implement them and some of the trade-offs that you're making in those cases anyway it's a pretty cool book now i would definitely recommend this um if um, if you've read uh, any of the platform studies uh, books, particularly uh, um, Racing the Beam, or maybe uh, The Future Was Here, uh, a couple of the platform studies books aren't quite as in-depth technical as the others, but those two are probably the top technical ones. Um, if you enjoyed those books, I, I suspect you'll really enjoy uh, Retro Game Archaeology. And if you just like... Uh, academic treatments of, of old games um, you know again I suspect you'll enjoy uh, reading this sort of thing in one of his chapters he, he sort of discusses where this work fits in amongst some other games or some other books that are out there um, 
And so um, he talks about, uh, he can, draws comparisons between where the platform studies books are, which um, platform studies books are about connecting technical details to culture, uh, ultimately is what the the intro to that series says. And so it, it's not just a technical study, uh, but also about how it influenced the culture around the, those those platforms. But then there's other games that are, or other books that are much more esoteric. Uh, there's one called uh, Tin Print, which goes into a number of ways to implement a, a simple maze generating <laughs> program, uh, which interestingly does include a color computer version if, you, if you've ever read the Tin Print book. Um, but that one is very abstract and thinking about software and sort of what it means to the world and <laughs> not particularly technical beyond the fact that it's using software. And so anyway, so he says, well, where does retro game archaeology fall into that? Um, and so he'd say that the, the retro game archaeology falls at the most technical of the uh, end of the spectrum, um, whereas um, well, platform studies, software studies, and and uh, what he calls critical code studies falling somewhere in the middle. So um, I'd say, like I said, this this book is a much more technical uh, treatment of old game code <laughs> than you'll see in, in pretty much any other book out there, certainly anyone in print. Um, if that appeals to you, then you should definitely check out this book, see if you can find it uh, available. Now with the bad news, <laughs> now that I've sold you on this great book and told you how wonderful it is, uh, the bad news is, uh, if you go on uh, uh, Amazon, and we have a link in the show notes, the the hardcover of the book uh, is available brand new for uh, $84.67, <laughs> which at least is is uh, uh, cheaper than the list price of $99. <laughs> um, it is available uh, from some other sellers for a little bit cheaper, but you're still talking uh, close to the 70 or 65 or $70 range. There is a Kindle version. The price on that is $74.99, which I will say, at least uh, as someone who's looked at Kindle books before, uh, at least the Kindle price is cheaper than the the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the actual dead tree price, which so often uh, the Kindle price uh, for a book is is as expensive or more than its dead tree version which i've never understood anyway this book just came out this year uh published i think in uh may of 2016 it's if you are interested in any of the stuff i just talked about if you're interested in the technical segments i do on this show uh, i would say there's a really good chance that you'll be interested in this book and you'll enjoy reading it um, particularly if you're a person who's both into retro computing and someone who has a a technical background in computer science or computer engineering or uh, just IT in general even, you uh, will probably enjoy this book. Uh, I think it uh, is the kind of thing that is helpful if you want to develop your own code. It's uh, Obviously it's not a book on programming the color computer, but it is uh, a programming book that discusses some techniques that can be easily leveraged and adapted to writing code for the color computer or you know, whatever other retro computers you might have an interest in. Um, so, from that perspective, I definitely recommend it. If the price seems a bit high, uh, which I can't disagree that it is a little bit of a high price, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe you can request it through your local library system. <laughs> um, good luck if that's the case. I hope you'll be able to get it. Otherwise, um, you know, see if you can find a friend who might be interested in it. Maybe you can go in together on it. 
Alright, well that's probably enough of me yabbering on about this. Um, it's a good book, Retro Game Archaeology by John Acock. Um, there's also a couple of links uh, in the show notes to some uh, videos where he's done some talks at other universities uh, talking about essentially this topic. Um, if, if I haven't been enough to sell you on the book, then maybe those other videos will sell you on it. So check out the show notes for those as well. All right. Well, that's probably all I've got on this before I beat the, head, the dead horse any longer. So uh, <laughs> um, be good. Take care. Uh, retro forever. And, of course, uh, Coco. All right. Bye. It's a Radio Shack Merry Christmas. Oh, I remember that Christmas. Dad gave me my first shortwave radio from Radio Shack. What memories. This Christmas, we got our son's Color Computer 3 from Radio Shack. It hooks right up to our TV and was on sale for less than $130. The Color Computer 3 makes learning fun. Jimmy even lets me use it for word process when he isn't playing computer games. Lucky I still got my shortwave. Save $70 on the sale-priced Color Computer 3, only at Radio Shack. Okay, welcome back, Coco Cruisers. Um, we have today with a, uh, an interviewee, um, someone from uh, Tandy Engineering back in the day. Um, this is a, a name some of you may have heard of, uh, Mark Siegel. Um, joining us on the, on my side of the table um, will, of course, be Blanchard. Unfortunately, Mike Rowan is uh, unavailable due to... Uh, <laughs> from blue chicago or something like that <laughs> so hopefully uh hopefully um mike is doing well uh so mark um i kind of messed up your role at tandy engineering in the email so maybe we should just start with uh you know can you explain to us what exactly you did at tandy um maybe start with the when you started at tandy and uh how you're uh how you got to be involved well uh i was dealing with uh, Tandy is uh, VP of Engineering at uh, DataSoft, and they fell mm -hmm. on a little hard times, uh, so I left there, and Tandy immediately hired me, so I moved to Fort Worth, where I was originally from anyway. Uh, <laughs> cool. I started uh, over in uh, Tandy Electronics R&D. Uh, trying to uh, get some new product, new ideas into the color computer area, uh, which I had been doing at uh, DataSoft. Uh, mm -hmm. It wasn't too long before uh, I was moved over to uh, Radio Shack uh, as a sort of go-between uh, for the outside world, Tandy Electronics, and, uh, um, and and it just so happened I was involved in a, all, all the Tandy computers, not just the color computer. So I wound up uh, becoming product manager of uh, all ten Tandy Electronics and Radio Shack uh, consumer pro uh, computer products. So the 1000s, the color computers, the Model 100s, uh, as opposed to the business systems, which were the uh, bigger box items. And uh, I did okay. that for a couple of years. And uh, mostly uh, during the color computer era, uh, during those times, they also allowed me to uh, direct the design of uh, color 
computer products. So that's kind of where I started from where I got to. <laughs> cool. So you're at Datasoft, huh? You were working with Steve Bjork yeah, over there? In, in fact, I, I hired Steve Bjork. <laughs> that's cool. Um, let's see. Um, so one of the things that we thought would be interesting, since it's uh, this is going to be kind of our Christmas episode, um, is um, you know if we since you'd be the man in the in the know about uh, sort of the the phases of um, or the process of getting a, a, uh, a cocoa related product um, you know onto the shelves at Radio Shack. Um, you know, maybe you could run us through what something what that was like in general, uh, and then maybe uh, talk about the run up to the Christmas season and and um, you know maybe there's a funny story in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, um, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it generally uh, people would submit software. Uh, to the company, uh, actually, I'm not sure where they actually submitted it to. All I know is if it wound up getting to somebody of significance, uh, it wound up on my desk to take a look at. At that point, I'd cool. take a look at it, uh, see if it was something we were interested in, uh, get in touch with uh, the person who wrote it. Um, we would talk about it a little bit and see how much they were willing to modify it with uh, stuff that we would want done to it. And then I would go up to the buyer, and at that time the buyer was Barry Thompson, uh, show it to him, talk to him about it, uh, tell him what I thought, it, you know, whether I thought it was good enough or not. He he made the final buying decision as to whether he wanted the product, although I could have easily said, no, we don't want this, and never even got it that far. Uh, and, you know, w once he said, yeah, I'm interested in it, then I'd go back and uh, negotiate uh, royalties with the uh, writer and uh, what things we'd want changed on it. And uh, basically, when uh, we got those changes, uh, pass it over to our testing group. Uh, if they bought off on it, it would go into production. Mm -hmm. And about how long is would that process take? Is that a matter of weeks or months or? Oh no, that that process usually took about uh, between four to eight, nine months. Okay. So, uh, so if I show up in August with the cool new game, that's uh, way too late to <laughs> to get it in the in the. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's something. It, to to be in the stores for Christmas, it had to be done by uh, uh, July. Because mm -hmm. you have mm -hmm. to that once once uh, <clears throat> if it's in the warehouses in July, it takes. Uh, a couple of months to get out to the stores. Uh, they, I mean, at that point, I think there were like uh, uh, 6,400 stores. 
and mm-hmm. uh, you know they'd have to have some advertising on it and Christmas spiffs and all sorts of stuff like that. So it would take another, you know, um, uh, yeah, about two, two, three months to get into the stores, and by then you were into Christmas sales. Yeah. So what about uh, shelf space on the at the retail stores uh, for the computer products? Did did you have a guaranteed amount of space, or uh, did you have to justify it on a regular basis? How much space you needed for new products? And no, sort of no, that, the space was never an issue. I, you know, if uh, the the issue was getting decent product. Uh, <laughs> I mean, all the decent product we could sell, we put out. Cool. And I got to tell you, there was a little, a significant amount of indecent product. <laughs> uh, it, 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 you know, what people thought was saleable uh, was just amazing to me. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> well, it definitely was a different time, and uh, people had uh, different ideas about what might sell or not, I'm sure. Um, well, it was not. It was not necessarily what people. That you know, the p- people had a, a a real inflamed ego type thing that this is a great product when you look at it, and so well, you know, take me about ten minutes in basic to write something equivalent to this. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. Um... Like you say, there's um, but there there was a bit of a line uh, or fine line to, to be had there, I think, because a lot of things you'd look back on them now, you know, as a professional uh, uh, software developer, and and look at this this product here. This seems pretty simple, um, but yet we needed or somebody needed that back in the day, so it's better to have it than not to have it. Um, you know, well, I I think. Part of the problem when evaluating uh, those products in uh, compared to today is that I mean most of those were uh, four and eight k uh, ROMs. I mean you know a, a <laughs> right. program today's uh, uh, me- megabytes. Uh, you couldn't even I'm get sure. the title screen in in eight k. <laughs> <laughs> So no, that's definitely true. So, Neil, so, what are your thoughts? You know, yeah. DataSoft had some really nice uh, software, you know, back in the day. I remember, I mean, even stuff I have now here that I've collected. Yeah, we did a pretty good job. Uh, DataSoft was an interesting company into itself. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I actually it was uh, it was working uh, for a company previous to that called Programma International, which was like the first uh, third-party software company. And uh, they were bought up by Simon & Schuster, and they split up, and uh, Pat Kitchum, the guy who started Datasoft, uh, was was actually one of the people trying to buy Programma. And uh, when the whole thing went down, the Two people who actually ran it uh, were trying to sabotage each other and wanted to make sure that neither one of them got me, so I wound up going to work for Datasoft. <laughs> well, so at, at Datasoft, um, now I'm not sure where I got this impression. Maybe it's from talking to Steve Bjork. But um, did they have um, – were individuals kind of um, 
grouped based on their their the machines they were familiar with, and then they passed the titles around as they got ported so that one group would port uh, port to the TRS 80s and one group would port, not, port to the Apple. Not not at the time I was there. At the time I was there, uh, uh, we only had actually two people writing software. Uh, on mm. uh, well, I should say by the time I left, maybe three or four. Most of the people there uh, didn't have Apple experience and didn't have. Uh, Commodore experience. Most of what they had was uh, Radio Shack computer experience. So mm-hmm. uh, those other uh, computers, uh, most of those authors were uh, uh, external and just selling their software to the company to be branded as DataSoft. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, After I left, uh, I'm not sure what happened. I was, uh, uh, you know, uh, we had a pretty good relationship. Uh, They pretty much uh, came to me with some ideas, and we would uh, evaluate their product, and they did a good job, and we sold it. (laughs) Uh, It was a little bit more difficult to get them to write OS 9-based code, but... Uh, they eventually did that too. Cool. Well, that's a you know, actually that's an interesting transition point. So, so you know, later in the life of the Coco, um, basically all the games or most of the software in general, I guess, was uh, um, you know self booting disks. Uh, they booted OS nine, and the games ran on OS nine. Um, did you um, did you have any influence over that? And if so, oh yeah, you know, that that was that was uh, uh, OS nine becoming the operating system was all me. Uh, uh, when I got to Radio Shack, uh, one of the big questions was, all right, we got a disk out there. Uh, how do we start selling disk based software? And obviously, disk basic was not really an operating system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were a lot of people there that decided that, well, you know, it would be nice to get the guy who wrote uh, Tris DOS to write uh, a DOS for uh, the color computer, and I, I quickly uh, nixed that. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and really, you know, the, the only two options were uh, Flex and OS 9, and uh, uh, there was no comparison to the quality operating systems, so it didn't take long to get uh, uh, to negotiate uh, with Microware um, and get OS 9 ported over. So that was a, a positive? Do you think that was a good thing, successful? Uh, yeah, I, I, um, I mean, you know, as it went, you know, True on, you know, one could argue on the 64K based machines, uh, it didn't afford a lot of space. Uh, but, um, you know, the ultimate goal was to move up in memory, and really there wasn't anything else uh, that would have uh, allowed you to do what OS 9 Level 2 does. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, cool. A lot of people don't realize that uh, you, you could call entire blocks as subroutines in OS 9. 
and not very many people did that because they didn't quite understand how to do it. But you could have written a, a single program that utilized all of memory. <laughs> yeah. The other cool thing I think about the OS 9 self-booting disks is that it was easier for consumers to load. Just typing DOS really helped. Well, yeah, actually, uh, the DOS command I wrote because um, <laughs> I the, uh, we had to come up with some way to boot it. it that was a interesting problem. I had to get Microsoft to go modify Basic a, a little bit so I could plug in some of my own code. They were originally uh, not willing to do that, but you know, uh, we we did manage to get them to relent and put in the hooks. So was were they difficult to work with in general, or were they pretty friendly? Or uh, Microsoft was, uh... was impossible to work with. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. In, in fact, on several occasions, uh, they basically said, "Well, if you don't do it this way, then we're going to pull uh, the MS DOS." contract from you so you kind of had to do what they wanted okay well uh, that segues a little bit um, so I guess you said uh, that you were managing over uh, all the uh, consumer uh, uh, computers and uh, which you, yep. you basically, basically yep. was the Coco and the Tandy 1000s and the model 100s and, uh, and just uh, all the weird you know, uh, MC10s and all <laughs> right. that stuff. But but like not the Model 16 or Model 6000, is that right? No, th those were considered uh, business machines. Those were under somebody okay. else. Okay, um, but definitely the 1000 is in there. Um, yep. So uh, there's a, a feeling amongst the, some of the remainder of the Coco community or whatever, I guess, um, that the Coco was kind of treated like the redheaded stepchild, shall we say, uh, that the Tandy 1000 line got preference in the long run. Um, how would you respond to that? Do you, do you feel like the, the, the 1000 was uh, treated better? Or do you maybe you feel uh, like it's I, I, No, it, re it really wasn't treated better, but uh, from a longevity standpoint, uh, you know, Intel uh, was continuing to upgrade their processors and the Motorola was going nowhere. So right. it, it was uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy. There, you know, there just simply wasn't anything else for us to do except to go into the Intel uh, range, and you know, because that's what we were having to compete with. So I mean, it 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 wasn't for lack of not wanting the next generation color computer, but. Uh, Motorola wasn't generating the next uh, generation 6809, and if yeah. you compared the the, the Intel uh, architectures with the 68,000, and you know a lot of people can argue about this, uh, the the you know at, at the end of the line, Intel uh, processors are much more powerful than my uh, than Motorola processors ever got. Mm -hmm. So you know, well, it's certainly it, true. It was, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just saying that you, you have to look in, into the distance and decide into the future and decide, you know, 
what path you're going to go on. Uh, the Intel graphics kept getting better. Uh, there was um, Motorola con- continued no graphics. Uh, you know, it, it, there wasn't a choice. It was not like, well, we can go in this direction or that direction. There was only one direction to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I can certainly understand that perspective. Do you have anything new? Just thinking, it, it does make sense. I mean, the you know, Radio Shack needed a path to go, and if uh, you know, Motorola wasn't really providing it. I mean, I guess it made sense to go the uh, Intel route. Well, uh, yep. I mean, and not only that, all that's where the competition was. It would have been great if uh, there had been uh, some other processors uh, that offered a competition, uh, but. You know, you look at what happened to uh, Atari and Commodore and uh, all those items, and you know they they got they they got to their sixty eight thousand. They just died. There was no further uh, movement on those systems. Mm-hmm. They went a little bit longer, but they kind of hit a brick wall. Well, I mean, you 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 have to look out five six years. Um, and uh, they couldn't tell you what was happening next year. <laughs> it, 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 Intel uh, had, had a chart that uh, went all the way up to the Pentium by that point. Oh wow! So, so we knew what that we knew what those processors were going to be. Mm-hmm. And we also know they had a lot more money to make that happen than anybody else. Yeah, I've seen charts like that from Intel in my in my uh, current life, uh, <laughs> so I definitely know what you mean by uh, by having a, a long term plan, um, and so uh, definitely gives you um, confidence in the company. Uh, also, Mark, um, what are you most proud of from from back uh, in your time at Tandy? What do you think was uh, well, your best achievement? Uh, you know, I- I think the Color Computer 3 was a really fine achievement. I mean, if you look at what's in that system, uh, the design of uh, the the home computer today is basically the same thing. They've got uh, uh, analog displays. They've got uh, DAC sound systems. uh, They're multitasking. Uh, I mean, if you go point by point, what's in a color computer three, the computer today has all those same things in it. And that can't be mm-hmm. said for basically any other computer of its time, of, of that time frame. Yeah, no, I definitely agree there that uh, the kind of the basic um, uh, architecture there that is, um, you know, like you say, on the one hand, it's it's lacking some of the specific offloads or whatever, but it actually, in in many ways, is more like a modern machine, uh, certainly more flexible. Um, so that's uh, that's cool. And it also kept a good price point as well. Well, Tandy had a was pretty hard about their price points. It's got you know they they said well you know this machine has to sell for this price, not one cent more. And we have to make this much profit on it, not one cent less. So the budget you had was, you know, uh, you just had to decide what you could do with that money. And I think we made some good decisions on the Color Computer 3. I know there are people out there that would argue differently, but 
As I say, if you compare that system to the system today, they're pretty close. Well, that's cool. Well, then uh, let me ask you, what would you do different uh, if you could go back and, and have those days again? What would you do differently? You know, I've thought about that on uh, many occasions, and the answer is probably not a damn thing. Uh, the only thing I might do slightly differently is reorganize how we did the programmable interrupt generator and uh but but that's about it i mean you know it's uh <laughs> i was gonna say that's a pretty specific design point <laughs> uh yeah i mean you know that uh, i can't think of how we could have optimized uh that that dollar level any better mm -hmm. um what's your guys feeling on that well, you know, like I say, I think uh, the the big takeaway point that that, um, uh, that you communicated uh, and that uh, uh, I've heard uh, both from you and, and some other folks uh, from time to time is the big dollar squeeze there that um, that you have to kind of frame everything else under that perspective that um, every decision had to had to be you know a, a trade off for um, the cost effectiveness. And so once you put that framework around it, um, you know, I do think you've come up with a, a pretty good set of uh, compromises. Um, you know, I think one thing that we people hit on uh, uh, the color computer, including the three, is, is maybe the lack of a, a sound generator. Um, but, um, you know, with the, the interrupt generator uh, uh, and the timer, um, you know, you can generate a pretty good range of sounds uh, programmatically uh, that makes up for a lot of that, and it's certainly more flexible. Um, you know, the um, yeah, I guess the other big hit on the the, the Coco uh, has always been the graphics on the Coco One and Two, uh, which you know, you kind of were living with the chipset from Motorola, <laughs> so you can only do really what they. Yeah, and and they weren't going to do any more for that chipset than they already did. I mean, it, it was like pulling teeth to get them to put the lower case in. <laughs> yeah. I agree, though. I mean, considering that strict budget, I mean, the Coco 3 is one fantastic system. I mean, you know, when you compare it with, uh, you know, an IBM XT with CGA graphics, I mean, the Coco 3 really blows it away. If you're looking at an XT uh, the 6809 uh, was every bit as fast as the 8088. So, uh, you know, um, the the only advantage they had was a little bit more memory. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the Coco 3 even compares reasonably favorably uh, against uh, the Apple II GS, <laughs> uh, which probably does have a little more uh, clock cycle um, budget. But... Uh, uh, overall, though, I think they're kind of in the same league. So, I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, but you know, the, 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 the Apple was also three times the price. Yeah, exactly. For the price difference, <laughs> the Cocoa definitely is a winner on value. So... I mean, if well, I'd have um, had that budget, it, it, you know, it would have been a much... <laughs> uh, you know, it, it probably would have uh, been equivalent to today's machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very cool. 
Well, so Mark, I know um, I know you've been um, kind of back in contact with with Boise while he was writing his book, and and uh, some of the rest of us uh, through uh, uh, project to get the uh, the, the uh, cartridge case uh, reproductions or whatever redesign, shall we say? Uh-huh. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I know you're aware of the retro scene, uh, shall we say, that the, there's people still um, playing with these old machines and doing even new things with them. What do you think of that? Uh, this uh, uh, this echo from uh, so much earlier in your career. Um, do you think we're all crazy, or? <laughs> Well, no, I mean, you know, uh, I I look at it as the same people who uh, like the sports cars from the 50s and 60s. Uh, um, You know, those machines were actually a lot easier to program than today's stuff. Uh, Uh On today's computer, uh, there's virtually no way to get down to the hardware level. Uh, and uh, that's actually a pretty interesting place to be unless you want to get into uh, building your own uh, microchip-based uh, uh, or you know some of the other uh, Atmels or some of the other uh, board-level stuff out there. Uh, getting to actual uh, being able to program stuff at the hardware level just doesn't exist today. So, you know, I I don't know why other people do it, but if I were doing it, that's why I would be doing it. (laughs) Well, that's cool. Well, so, um, well, I wanted to make you aware of something. I don't think uh, you're probably not aware of because we've only been doing it for a little while. We've um, started planning on an event. I know you're you're, you're aware of Cocoa Fest, right, which um, we do a yearly event where we have uh, people out to celebrate the color computer. Well, we've started working on uh, in in collaboration with another podcast that's dedicated to the you know the the, the business line, shall we say, the Z, the Z80 line of TRS 80s, um, and uh, we're looking to to produce a a uh, a festival, shall we say, uh, uh, called that we're you know, calling Tandy Assembly, <laughs> and uh, we're planning to have a gathering uh, next October in Chillicothe, Ohio. Uh, I wonder if uh, you might be interested in penciling that in. <laughs> Maybe you could uh, join us. Uh, you're certainly welcome. Well, I'll I'm certainly gonna... put it down and I'm see not... if it's something I can get to, but yeah, I'd be interested in that. Cool. cool. Yeah, I'm not going to pin you down, uh, but uh, you're certainly welcome to attend. And uh, anything we can do that would help you, uh, you know, make the decision to come would uh, let us know. Um, and uh, if there's anyone else that uh, from back in the day uh, that uh, might be interested um, in, you know, Tandy uh, folks, um, definitely uh, help us get in contact with, with them. And, uh, um, you know, we'd like to have uh, uh, as many people to come and uh, uh, help us celebrate uh, 40 years of Tandy computers uh, <laughs> as we possibly can. Um I don't suppose you have a line for uh, Steve Leininger. <laughs> uh, no, um, I actually only uh, met the guy about three times while I was at, uh, there. He was uh, one of those people that um, I think pretty much by the time I got there, uh, he was just doing consulting. Oh, yeah. He kind of moved on to other things. Cool. 
But uh, no, well, that's cool. Um, anyway, we would, uh, like I say, extend the invitation for you to come. And, uh, you know, if we can uh, help make that happen, let us know. And, um, and like I say, anybody that you come across, you bump into somebody, say, hey, those, those, maybe those guys would like to talk to this guy or, you know, something they might want to know, uh, do feel free to put us in contact. Uh, I think that would be cool. Daniil, what else do you have? You got anything else? No, not that I can think of. That's uh, I was I was just going to mention the Tandy Assembly, but you did a great job of that. That's perfect. Uh, it'd be great to have you there, Mark. Well, if I can get there, I will. Cool. So that's going to be in Chillicothe, Ohio, in uh, early October 2017. Um, we'll get you more specifics uh, uh, as time progresses. Okay, well, so I guess the the, question, the one question left for you, Mark, would be what, what question did I not ask you? <laughs> I don't know, but this has not been very long. <laughs> no, no, well, let's see. Uh, any good Barry Thompson stories? <laughs> uh, no, I understand he's no longer with us, so. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, for those uh, who aren't aware, Barry Thompson is the the voice uh, in uh, in our theme song, saying, "Hey, have you got your Coco Three yet?" <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, he's uh, a well, good sorry, guy. Um, I think the other thing that uh, kind of uh, ended the Coco Three or the Coco career was. Uh, uh when they hired the vp uh from ibm to you know he he only wanted to do ibm like products so mm -hmm. that was a bit of a problem so the, did that influence the uh, the tandy 1000 yeah, yeah, uh, uh yeah i mean you know that's he had uh, upper management's ear and uh got them to uh go uh pretty much uh IBM like even though uh we differed from IBM a huge amount just a random question are you familiar with the the, the TV series of Halt and Catch Fire yes <laughs> did, are it. you a fan of that and I was wondering if uh, that uh... you know it, I I got to tell you it you know uh uh I, I watched the show and um, trying to relate it back to how stuff actually happened, and they weren't very close no. <laughs> on, on pretty much anything. No. Well, shocking that Hollywood would maybe not get that right, huh? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I, I thought maybe they had a chance. It was a good idea for a series. Uh, uh, and they certainly could have hired some people uh, that um, were in the business to try and make things more realistic. But and, and I got to tell you, you know, some of the stories from the actual uh, being there were a lot more fun than uh, <laughs> they came up with. So, <laughs> oh yeah, does any of those come to mind right now? <laughs> mm. Well, none that I would tell. <laughs> Were you guys ever at the, the early Rainbow Fests? No, no, I'm probably a little too young for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I know wish, it, it would have been cool to go to some of those. So, so if you're really too young for the machine, what got you guys involved in them? 
<laughs> well, I got so I got a Coco when I was uh, in the fourth grade. Uh, it was my first computer. Um, uh, after I had, um, well, I, I had some experience in school with an Apple II, and then um, we had uh, a teacher taking us uh, down to the local Radio Shack Computer Center uh, for some classes in BASIC uh, that was taught on a on a, a Model Three. And then uh, my dad was a ham, so he spent plenty of time in a Radio Shack back in the day. And uh, one day he came home with a color computer. <laughs> and so that was my first computer. And uh, spent many an hour uh, typing away, typing in programs, or writing some of my own, that sort of thing. What um, year was that? Uh, let's see, that would be 81, maybe? Fall of '81, I'd say it was probably right. So, okay, that well, that would have been a brand new color computer then. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, myself, I uh, I got involved in the Coco because uh, the Color Computer Three was my first computer, and that's going uh, in 1988. And uh, did you get a whole system or just the computer? I got a whole system uh, minus the monitor. So I used a TV for a little while until I saw how nice the CM8 was, and then uh, I had to upgrade later on. And it was well, a... would you have made any different choice now that you know what you know? No, actually, I'm very happy I uh, I started the Coco 3 because, like I said, at that time, a lot of my friends had PCs, but uh, the graphics are pretty poor on it, you know, being with, uh, you know, most, most everybody I knew had a CGA uh, graphics card. And, uh, you know, the Color Computer 3 just outshine that. And it's actually a funny story how I wound up getting a Coco 3 as my first computer. It was all because the Radio Shack had a sale on. And they uh, they had a blowout sale for $99 for the Coco 3. Now, that's just the machine, but, I mean, that was just an amazing price. Yeah, I can't <laughs> imagine what somebody was thinking, but <laughs> that was a, that's a hell of a price for that machine. But then you make up for it when you buy the disk drive and the other peripherals, so. Well, you know, you, you did that with every other computer out there too. Uh, you know, uh, Atari disk drives and all those things were just really expensive. Yeah, that's so true. Mark, it was great talking to you, and uh, unfortunately, I have to cut out of this uh, interview because um, we started a little bit late. But uh, but but definitely, uh, thanks for being a part of it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Mark, it's been great talking, and uh, I think we got some good content here. I definitely appreciate you talking to us. And uh, like I said, I hope uh, maybe we can see you at uh, Tandy Assembly. All right. Great, Great. to see you there. <laughs> Thanks, All right. guys. Thank you, Mark. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. You're only young once, but you can be retro forever. A single spark of imagination can ignite the flame of the extraordinary. Introducing Tandy Assembly, the first gathering completely dedicated to Radio Shack and Tandy computer enthusiasts. Extraordinary. Recapture the excitement of the early days of Radio Shack microcomputing. Relive the Tandy evolution of MS-DOS compatible systems. Meet people who continue to support and expand these retro computer systems. New products. New software new ideas a single spark of imagination from pocket computer to tandy 6000 from z80 to 486 we're not finished rediscovering our most beloved computers 
Join us at Tandy Assembly. Retro forever. Something new is coming. October 2017. Tandy Assembly. Alright, welcome back to the Games Corner. Before we jump into the Games Corner, I'd like to take a brief moment and mention my latest vintage computer event I attended earlier this month. It's called World of Commodore, and it's held in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. It is put on by the Toronto Pet Users Group, called T-Pug. It is also very easy to remember the fest dates because it is held on the first Saturday and Sunday of every December. Although I'm not a huge Commodore guy, I started going to this event because I figured it's only one hour drive for me, and hey, why not go check it out? This was my third year going. I have met some great people there, such as Walter Miraglia, who was also a Coco and TRS-80 Model 4 fan. I'm mentioning this event here because it reminds me a lot of CocoFest. The T-Pug Users Group has been around for many years, just like Glenside has been for CocoFest. They managed to bring in some cool guest speakers to give a talk. This past year, they got Bill Hurd to show up and give a talk on the Commodore 128. Although it is a Commodore-based event, you will see other machines there. The past two years, I've noticed Coco 2s being given away on the freebie table. I've also noticed Jim Brain shows up every year and has a table selling and talking about his latest hardware. If you ask or look closely, you just may see some of his Coco creations. One last thing I will mention is I've heard them talking about someday turning this event into a multi-platform fest, something similar to VCF. I'm not trying to start any rumors or promise this will happen. I'm just mentioning what I was hearing from someone at the event. For all I know, this could just be false information. For my sake, I would be thrilled if it does turn into a multi-platform event like VCF, especially because it's so close to home. Well, if you're listening to this podcast and you live not far from the Toronto area, or you're going to be in the Toronto area the first weekend of in December, I highly recommend coming to check this event out. You just may even see a cocoa there being given away. Okay, back to the games corner. In this episode, I'd like to discuss a few different things. First off, I'd like to give a huge thanks to Mark McDougall for saving me big time last month on doing a review for Popstar Pilot. By the way, I have received my copy. It came in about two weeks ago. I've spent some time playing it, and I'm definitely impressed. And just like Mark mentioned in his review, this is definitely not a typical 2D shooter dodging gobs of bullets. This is more of a strategic side-scroller, and let me tell you, it is brutally difficult. Just to be clear, this is not a bad thing. It's just from the screenshots and videos I've seen of this game running, it looks way easier than it is. I honestly thought I'd be able to finish this game the first night I got it. Ha, fat chance of that. Highest I've made it so far is the start of level 3. I'm looking forward to spending some more time playing Popstar Pilot over the holidays. And the other thing I look forward to playing over the holidays is Christmas demos. This may sound silly, but every year I like to load up and run some Christmas demos on my Coco. Now you may ask, what Christmas demos? Well, here are a few of my all-time favorites. First on the list is the original Radio Shack Christmas demo written by Spectral Associates in 1986 for Radio Shack. This demo was played in Radio Shack stores during Christmas time to showcase the Color Computer 3, showing off its brilliant high-res color graphics, animation, and sound. I don't want to give the whole demo away in case you have not watched it yet, but it starts off with workers on an assembly line loading a Radio Shack truck. Hmm, I wonder what happens next. Second on the list is the Sierra Christmas Card Demo. And it's funny how we just talked about AGI video games in the news segment this month. This is a very interesting demo for the Coco 3, because technically back in the day it wasn't available for the Coco 3. 
but since it is the same code as a Sierra AGI video game, it was discovered and ported over to the Coco under Nitrous 9, along with all the other Sierra games we missed out on back then. When first loading this demo, it asks you to enter a special message. It will then animate it on a Christmas card. There are also lots of other cool screens and music. I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. Both of these demos I mentioned require a Color Computer 3 and can also take advantage of 512K memory. They can be downloaded from the Color Computer Archive website. We will be sure to put links in the show notes. While you're on the Color Computer Archive, look for other Christmas demos as there are many for the Coco, even for your Color Computer 1. Be sure to do some searching when you're on there. And to top it off, after you are all demoed out, you can play a round or two of John Linville's Xmas Rush game. And the good thing, it is Coco 1, 2, and 3 friendly. Now you have no excuse not to use your Coco over the holiday season. No Coco should go powered off during the holidays. Hook a projector up and let some demos loop in the background. Or better yet, set a cocoa station up in your kitchen for when your family and friends come over. You just know they'll be totally impressed seeing what a real computer can do. And most importantly, they will know you have style. Mm. There's no place I'd rather be right now than right here with you, listening to the Coco Crew Podcast. Hello, hello, hello everyone. Um, this is a pl- 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 plumpy pig with uh, my, um, my my little t- t- take on um, 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 uh, b- 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 blue c- c- Christmas. Enjoy. I'll have a blue Christmas without you. I'll be so. Blue, just thinking a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit about you. Decorations of red on a green Christmas tree won't be the same girl. If you're not here with me, and when those blue snowflakes start falling, that's when those blue memories start calling. You'll be doing all right with your Christmas of white, and I'll have a blue, blue, blue Christmas. Back to more retro goodness with the Coco Crew. Well, we have reached the end of episode 19 and the end of 2016. It's the end of the year. I can't believe it's been 20 plus shows already. I'd like to thank our host John Linville for painstakingly gathering all the news each month and providing us a book review instead of a tech segment this month. I thought the Canadian author was a nice touch. Also, I'd like to thank Mike Rowan yet again for making some of the coolest commercials and sound bites. Also nice to have you as a full-time partner on the podcast now. Thanks also goes out to Mark Siegel for giving us your time for the interview. 
And most importantly, we'd like to thank all of you for listening each month. Like I've said before, if we didn't have you listening, we would just be talking to ourselves. That'd be kind of silly. Keep your feedback coming in. We'd like to hear from you. We hope everyone has a fantastic Cocoa holiday season and best wishes for a new year. To more Cocoa time, more Cocoa projects, and remember, keep your Cocos on nice and toasty all holiday season. Until then, see you all in 2017 for episode 20, Cocoa Forever. <laughs>